this episode, Justice League America number 37 and Justice League Europe number 13, cover dated April 1990. Welcome to the 37th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but I'm not doing this alone. Thankfully, I'll be joined by two fellow comic enthusiasts to help me cover these issues. We'll chat with my second co-host a little bit later, but for now, my first co-host today was raised on a steady diet of Star Wars, Ghostbusters, and extreme 1990s comic books. Later in life, they found their joy in other subjects, such as Doctor Who, Farscape, and generally being a buzzkill to other people's happiness. Someone once described this guest as, uh, as my nemesis, and uh, by some Someone, I, I mean, they said it themselves, and it was like just one time when they kind of mad at me, which now I think about it, they're pretty much mad at me all the time, really. But anyway, uh, my guest is a podcaster, a YouTube phenomenon, and part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Folks, please help me welcome Nathaniel Wayne. Welcome to the New York Embassy, Nathaniel. Thanks for being here. How you doing? You could have at least picked the place up a little bit if you were going to have company over. Crying out loud, man. By the time we get to the end of this issue, you'll understand why the place is such a mess. <sighs> I suppose so. Not that you bothered to read the comic, because you were messaging me about 30 minutes before we started recording. You okay. Clearly, we were reading it for the first time. <laughs> Look, you told me when we were recording. I read it before we started recording. I do not see the issue here. Let me be perfectly clear. I told Nathaniel when we were going to be recording four years ago. You had enough notice, okay? And I have ADHD. What the heck did you think <laughs> you were getting? So the true story here is, I mean, all of that was true, by the way, but the true story is when Nathaniel was scheduled, Nathaniel was doing a little podcast that I absolutely adored called 90s Comics Retrial. This thing was an absolute blast. Nathaniel was going through and exploring all these old extreme 90s comics that you read back in the day. Well, apparently Nathaniel didn't have the wherewithal to stick to that podcast and killed it. How much? What? Two years ago? Yes. I was a victim of that podcast. <laughs> I did not kill that podcast. That podcast almost killed me. Because what I did Executioner's Song, that thing broke me. That was 13 issues of torture. <laughs> and I have no guilt and no shame about walking away at that point. Well, you have no shame anyway. Well, this is true. <laughs> And, like, to give you an idea of what things are like, I'm now on, I think, the fourth change of format and content on the podcast feed since then. True. So that gives you an idea of me. That having been said, 90s Comics Retrial has happened twice on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel, including one just last year. I knew Nathaniel was going to pull this crap. See, didn't have the wherewithal, as I said, to stick with 90s Comics Retrial, the podcast. And so, what is this? YouTube? I mean, like, 46,000 YouTube subscribers is more important than that podcast. I'm sorry. I just don't... The math just doesn't work. You didn't score high on the math on the SATs, did you? <laughs> it is still 46,000, right? It's not up to 47,000 yet? Um, let's see here. Maybe by the time this episode comes out. <laughs> 46,500. Good Lord. Why do that many people want to listen to you? I don't understand. You want to be baffled? I have almost 80,000 people following me on TikTok. I can't even explain that one to you. <laughs> 
<laughs> my daughter follows a lot of people on TikTok. Now I need to go make sure you're not one of them. Oh, goodness. Honestly, she shouldn't. <laughs> I, I don't want people under 18 following me on TikTok. I mean that very sincerely. Uh, so, folks, you can see Nathaniel and I have a long history. Uh, we've been, quote unquote, friends for a number of years. But uh, it's actually been a long time since we sat down and recorded a podcast together. So I've been looking forward to this. And uh, this is going to be a lot of fun because Nathaniel's coming to this very different than almost all of our previous guests. So it's going to be an interesting uh, ride, that's for sure. I believe the term that has frequently been thrown at me in the comment section of podcasts on this network is neophyte. <laughs> I am embracing it at this point. That's the take you're getting. Strap in. <laughs> well, uh, but we, we probably should get rolling here. So before we get too much further, we should take a second to thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. Usually, it's related to this issue in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I wanted to mention uh, one that's relevant. To, uh, very exciting for us JLI fans is they have just released the Justice League International Omnibus Volume 2 hardcover and it's on in-stock trade. So if you've been wanting to get this thing but you didn't want to pay the hefty sum because it normally retails $125 but keep in mind it's like a thousand pages you could literally kill someone with it. You can get again Volume 2 of the Omnibus which includes this issue we're going to be covering today. It's got JLA number 31 through 50 in the annual number 4, Justice League Europe 7 through 25 in annual number 1, quarterly number 1, the special number 1 I mean, it's awesome. You know, it's Giffen and Demetrius. You got Bart Sears, Adam Hughes, Mike McCone. So many fantastic people. Great cover by Kevin Quire. Again, normally retails for $125. You can get it for 42% off right now, so it's only $72.50. That's a hell of a deal. And again, it can also be used as a weapon. So now, Nathaniel, did you happen to go through the InStock Trades library and select something? Because, you know, all the cool kids do. Not that I'm expecting you to be one of them, though. I did, for the record. Wow. Uh- <laughs> But I'm going to go with the absolute antithesis of what you felt like plugging this <laughs> massive thing that, yes, it's a great deal, but it's still a significant chunk of money. Yes. Because you, ha- you have absolutely no consideration for people's budgets and the fact that even at this point, they're still recovering from holiday season spending. I, on the other hand, <laughs> am going to highlight DC Comics Wonder Woman Complete Covers, Volumes 2 and 3. These are mini hardcovers. They are smaller size books. They're three and a half inches by three inches, but they do feature 304 pages of covers of over the years of Wonder Woman, normally retailing for $11.99, 25% off for $8.99, softer on your budget, and while they may be smaller, they are still hardcovers, so you can use it as a weapon, more of a shuriken than a a blunt bludgeoning <laughs> one. That sounds really, really cool. I, I was not even aware of these things' existence. So any kind of collection of Wonder Woman covers, this not just a whole bunch of New 52 covers, uh, would be absolutely phenomenal. That sounds awesome. You're welcome. Y- you see that? He can't stop himself. The praise for me has begun. Oh, my gosh. What do, what do they call that? A sudden uh, oncoming migraine? Uh, is that a, a buzzkill grain or something like that? Hmm. Mm-hmm. He's, he's going to need a long shower after this one, folks. <laughs> I needed that after the pre-show. Are you kidding? All right, folks. uh, For this (laughs) and your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. This episode is also sponsored in part with your help at home, with your Patreon support, which we sincerely appreciate. Because, you know, running the Fire & Water Podcast Network with so many expenses in hosting and paying off Nathaniel's blackmail fees and things like that, uh, it really became too much for us to bear as an expense. So we launched the Patreon about a year ago, and you guys really stepped up to the plate. And I can tell you, without your help at home, this network would not still be on the air. So, sincerely, 
we appreciate it. Uh, and if you'd like, we'd appreciate it if you'd go out to Patreon and take a look, which is patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and consider supporting the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And we sincerely appreciate everyone who supports us, and at certain tiers, you get recognized on your show of choice. These particular people uh, asked to be recognized on the Justice League International Show. So our thanks to Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, Danny Dowell, David A. Gutierrez, Devin Clancy, George William, Gord Tolton, John Ross Haynes, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Mike Zemkowski, Roger Preeb, Rudy Castillo, Sean Ross, and Tim Price. Again, thank you so much to everyone who supports the network, and please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. All right, folks, this is where I need your help. I need you to get out of the social medias, get out of the Twitters, get out of the Facebooks, use our hashtag, poundfwpodcast, tag us at JLI Podcast. You know, we have this great community of JLI fans around the show. I need your help. Nathaniel is going to try and suck the joy out of this comic book and out of my life personally. I need you guys to go out there and defend this book and tell Nathaniel why they're wrong step by step. Feel free to live tweet. I think that'd be fine. I'm, I'm okay with this. I assume you are as well, Nathaniel. This attention. Feed me. <laughs> well, here's where we start off, because this is the part of the show normally where I say, hey, how did you discover the JLI book? What made you fall in love with it? Where does your passion for this book come from? Nathaniel, I think you might have a different story here. What's What's your deal with JLI? Uh, you sent me an issue and I read it. <laughs> so literally you've never read an issue of the JLI prior to this? I honestly have not. Like my relationship with comics has always been, it, like it was brief in terms of when I actually bought comics. There's a reason why the podcast was 90s comics retrial and not several decades of you know worth of stuff. There was only about four years when I was regularly buying comics and unlike the rest of you weirdos on this network, I'm a Marvel guy for the most part. <laughs> so I obviously know who the Justice League are through absorption and just dwelling in geek spaces. I know what JLI is. Okay. I've heard your promos on plenty of stuff, but <laughs> that's about it. I've never read these particular issues or this particular era. I'd say the closest I ever came to this was like the bits where the Justice League showed up during the death of Superman. But uh, that wasn't okay. even this same crew. So, well, it was some of them. You knew who Beetle and Booster and Fire and them are, though, at least. I do. I know who they are. I know what they do. And I know, you know, what team they're associated with. I know not much about the personalities. I think I probably know the most about Booster. But that has more to do with watching and listening other people talk about him than actually reading him. Oh, I figured the child uh, temper tantrum and corporate shilling you just kind of recognized in yourself is where I figured you were going there. But okay. <laughs> it's called vamping when you try and think of something mean to say to me, right? <laughs> no, that like you you are you are beneath a retort. Oh wow. Okay. So that is Nathaniel's exposure to the JLI. Now the reason Nathaniel is on this specific episode, we've talked about 90s comics retail a bunch here, right? Well, this issue hit the shelves February 13th, 1990. So this was one of the earliest comics of the JLI in the 1990s. So that's why I wanted to have Nathaniel on this episode when I offered it to you all those years ago is because this is 90s and I knew you loved extreme and I felt like this was sort of the antithesis of extreme so uh, this is going to be fun to talk about I think see it is and it isn't but we'll come back to that alright fair enough now folks if you don't have Justice League America number 37 at home you can go out to our website which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI and we'll have a gallery post where we can see some of the issues from this comic but otherwise just freaking buy the omnibus or get it on Comixology or get it on DC Universe. I don't expect to have to do everything for you people at home. Goodness gracious. Anyway, published by DC Comics, cover dated April 
1990, but as we said, on the shelf, February 13th, 1990, the day before Valentine's. You could have actually given this as a Valentine's Day gift to someone the next day. <laughs> Cover price, $1 for Shiny Quarters. Cover is by Adam Hughes. So, Nathaniel, would you please describe the cover to the people at home? Certainly. So on the cover, we have Booster Gold, Fire, Blue Beetle, and I'm going to assume that is Ice, yes. who actually does not appear inside the pages of this comic. <laughs> Absolutely Even true. in the background. Yep. They are looking towards the reader, um, but appear to be reacting to something terrible, horrifying. And behind them, there is an alert that reads, Intruder Alert. And in fact, Blue Beetle has jumped up into Ice's arms <laughs> and Fire is hiding almost a little bit behind Booster Gold as Booster Gold has a hand up as if to say, no, get back. Right. <laughs> I will add one thing to it. I love the great perspective that we're looking at because the camera's actually down low and we're looking yes. up at the characters from the intruder's point of view, which will make sense as we get into the issue. So do you like the cover? Let's start with that. Taking the cover completely by itself? Yes, I do. It's actually got, it's funnily, it's kind of got a, an EC Comics vibe to me, that sort of reacting to some horror that you won't know what it is until you crack open the comic. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, it kind of has that vibe to it. I'd like, I don't I don't know these characters well enough to know how well or accurately they are rendered, but they're they're well drawn. I do kind of enjoy the humor of Blue Beetle jumping into Ice's arms. That said, he's blocking so much of her body that if she is as willowy as I would presume, given how female heroes were drawn at the time, that element is kind of lost because so much of her body is blocked. Well, it was that or a big cheesecake shot. So I'll take the, I'll take this instead. Well, uh, speaking of the cheesecake shot, so how low does the front bit of uh, Fire's, I don't know if that's a skirt or shorts, go? It's actually like, because, je- like green jeans. Yeah, I'm looking at the angle of that and I'm like, you... Okay, first of all, I, I don't know if you'll have to cut my saying this, but like, she must shave because her entire... <laughs> Her entire region that would be hair is clearly on display. And I'm like, you are a half inch away from just putting it all out there. Yeah. At that at that angle. Well, if you're familiar with Adam Hughes, Adam Hughes is well known for doing a tremendous amount of cheesecake art. And so I actually think he's fairly restrained on this cover compared to some of his previous work. So Oh I'm, dear God. Oh yeah. Oh Lord, no. <laughs> I'll have to show you some other covers at some point. Or if you look in the corner box and you see fire in the corner box there, which, by the way, I should mention, we do have a new corner box image. The last episode the, the, it had Beetle and Booster. Now we've got fire and ice. And those two will rotate going forward pretty much. But yeah, you can see fire the way she's drawn there in her costume. And that's that usually you have a lot more of everything's out for everybody to see kind of thing going on with that character. So he's not, uh, Adam Hughes is not usually shy about using her character sexually. And just like the character herself, she, she has no problem using her sexuality as a weapon or a tool. Which, which I, on principle, I can support. I'm a sex positive person, but geez, like, it, like part of the thing is it doesn't, it doesn't contribute to the vibe of the thing. Like how much of her and how low into her midriff this thing is. I think what you're seeing also is DC at this point chasing Marvel, really, because Marvel, of course, you know, had always had characters that were scantily clad or whatever. And DC really didn't do a lot of that at this point. And so I'm sure someone's going to come back and 
name off 15 characters that I haven't thought of. I guess there's Starfire, things like that, sure. But in the Justice League, you know, I guess Wonder Woman is wearing a bikini, essentially, or a bathing suit. Well, okay. I guess uh, maybe I'm backtracking all over the place here. But I do feel like... Well, I mean, like, Wonder Woman was always the exception to everything. Yeah, that's true. Well, I, I, I guess what I'm just trying to say is I feel like Fire's sexiness was a reaction to a lot of the sexiness over at Marvel and DC's trying to compete. But boy, they are really late to the party for crying out loud. Mary Jane was a go-go dancer back in the (laughs) 60s. It's true. Welcome to three decades ago, DC. That's it's not that wrong about them keeping up. I mean, think about it. I mean, it was the 1980s when they finally went ahead and tried to steal all the Marvel writers and artists. So, yep. So the other thing I do want to comment is uh, you mentioned uh, Ice is not in the book. Absolutely correct. But Boodle, Boodle. That's that's <laughs> that's the shipping name of Beetle and Booster. I fall back on all the time on by accident. Booster, Beetle, and Fire all appear on the cover in their costumes, and yet within the issue, all of them are in plain clothes or so. Yeah, or just that's a towel. The, that's the other thing I was going to get to. While I do like the cover for the most part as an image in and of itself. The cover functions, after you've read the book and realized what's actually going on, the cover actually functions as a joke. Yep. But as far as being honestly representative of what is going on in the pages, no, it, it, it really isn't. Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I, you know, I said I had one, I, I was going to be done, but I have one more comic because I just noticed there's this guy named Rob Kelly. Yeah, I don't know if you ever heard of him. Anyway, he loves to talk about foreshortening, the way people draw. And I just realized Adam Hughes has had to draw that hand coming at you. And apparently yep. Rob always says that's incredibly hard to draw. And, you know, he pulled that off pretty expertly here. I mean, it's... Well, very- honestly, hands in general, I know enough artists, like, they dread hands. Adding the foreshortening on top of that. No, again, like, it's a good image, but that's kind of in a vacuum. In the context of the thing, I'm like, I, I could see somebody seeing that, thinking, oh, something like broke in, and it's gonna be a, it's gonna be almost a- alien esque, and based off this cover, and then opening it up and being very let down. <laughs> it is a giant sitcom. This issue, it really, really is, and I kind of love it for that. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Let's get into it. So, oh, uh, yeah, like you're talking to somebody who doesn't really like sitcoms and never. Has. <laughs> All right, well, let's get inside. Plot by Keith Giffen, script by J.M.D. Mateus, pencils by Adam Hughes, inking by Art Nichols, apparently with inking assistance from Joe Rubenstein and Jack Torrance. Uh, letter is Albert de Guzman, colorist Gene D'Angelo, assistant editor Kevin Dooley, and editor Andy Helfer. The issue itself is called Furballs. Nathaniel, why don't you start us off? So we open on the shockingly nondescript New York Embassy of the Justice League International, where Booster Gold and Blue Beetle, out of costume, are doing chores as punishment for some previous shenanigans. Beetle seems to be just taking his lumps on the issue, but Booster has nothing but gripes at every step, eventually storming out after Martian Manhunter checks on them. We then cut to events unfolding in space! Near Neptune, where a probe satellite allows the reformation of something. It's basically like a red xenomorph with an even bigger head, if you could believe that. (laughs) And it goes on about hate and how it's fueled by hate and how it rides across space on hate and how strong its hate is and a double hate burger with hate (laughs) buns and hate sauce on the side. And that's all we're getting out of him. Then back on Earth, in the alley behind the JLI embassy, a bearded bum, or what appears to be one, with some rather paranoid rambling thought bubbles, steals one of the garbage cans, dumping the trash into the back of a car, then removing a fake beard to reveal 
someone who doesn't actually have a beard, I guess. I don't know if I'm supposed to recognize this person. They don't get identified. They drive off. It's implied that they are a reporter of some variety. That's all I've got. The remaining trash can, it wobbles, it tips over, causing Guy Gardner to come out and investigate. He finds nothing and doesn't realize that when he returns inside the building, he has been followed by a feral cat. All right, I'll take it from here. Uh, Next, we find Booster Gold at a swanky restaurant meeting a new character named Claire Montgomery. And they're meeting for lunch to discuss a business proposal, something mysterious about working together. Hmm. Meanwhile, back at the embassy, the alley cat sneaks upstairs and then startles fire. In her shock, she accidentally activates her powers and the sprinklers. Everyone comes running, and Guy Gardner ends up in a fight with this feral cat. And Guy loses! Next, Blue Beetle and Jean turn off the sprinklers. Meanwhile, Mr. Miracle has arrived and keeps introducing himself to everybody. But these are all people he already knows, which is very odd, but in the chaos, nobody really notices. Guy is finally able to get the cat out of Fire's room and kicks it into a teleporter tube, sending it somewhere. Guy argues with Fire, who is wrapped up in nothing but a towel. Guy makes some lecherous comments towards Fire, which she responds by blasting him with her green flames, which, of course, sets off the sprinklers again. Later, the team informs Max about what happened. He actually finds the situation hilarious. When Booster returns from his business meeting with Claire Montgomery, Max decides to tease Booster by telling him he'll have to clean up the mess. Angered by being treated as a joke and the juvenile antics, Booster storms out, quitting the Justice League. Next issue box says, more on Booster's decision. The secret of the garbage snoop revealed, the return of a former leaguer, and the premiere issue of a new magazine destined to blow the lid off the secret lives of the Justice League. And then it says, and for the lowdown on what happened to that darn cat, check out Justice League Europe number 13. On sale soon. Oof. All right, Nathaniel. I am excited to hear how much you love this comic book. Being your first JLI comic, nothing confusing in here. No dangling subplots or anything. It's just straightforward. What'd you think, buddy? What the hell did you have me read? I would like to do a dramatic reading from my Facebook Messenger. So tonight, <laughs> I get a message, I don't know, like 30 minutes before we're supposed to record, that says, uh, let's see here. It says, okay, seriously now, Shag, where's the real comic? Good joke, very funny, but there's no way that was it. <laughs> Look, I, here, here's the thing. And like... Just accept, listeners, that I'm going to tear into this thing because I have no context. I know I have no context. So please do not comment about how my problem is I have no context. That is the premise that we are working with here. (laughs) Look, I am the person who I alluded to before. The person who saw the cover and went, oh, that kind of looks interesting and picked it up and now has this to deal with. (laughs) Imagine me as being that person. I am not one of you. I can only work with what I have. And what I have is incomplete and ridiculous and filled with people who I want to smack. <laughs> Could you, all right, let's start, let's start at the ground level. Could you at least figure out who everyone was? Because nobody's, almost no one's wearing a costume in this whole thing. So, like, could you figure out who everybody was? I have no idea who the, what the thing in space was. Oh, well, that's, okay, That that's fair. That's the first time that appeared, uh, that's not been a dangling subplot. There's a new subplot that's being introduced for a future issue, so that's fair. I have no idea who the heck the guy stealing the trash was. Okay, that is a continuing subplot, but we also, as the reader, don't know who they are at this point. 
Right. But uh, you picked up all the clues, though, that they're clearly a reporter looking to write a story about the Justice League. So you're you're okay there, too. Everybody else, yes, I was able to to follow and figure out who they were. Like, they, even though they're out of costume, like, I know the names Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, and even the ones who get referred to by their civilian names do get referred to at least once by their hero names. So I could follow who everybody else was. Okay. That doesn't mean that I enjoyed following <laughs> them, but I could do it. <laughs> when I sat down to read this in preparation, I started going through it. I'm like, oh man, this is not an issue to hand a newbie. I mean, there's besides all the subplots and all the transition stuff going on, wrapping up one storyline where they're you know doing the dishes to all the hints for the future issues and no one in costume and everything. I'm like, I'm laughing my head off at this thing. I think this issue is hilarious, knowing full well also like, oh, poor Nathaniel. This is this is a this is a trap to walk into. <laughs> yeah. Transition's a good word for this. This is a transition episode. Now, that doesn't make it a bad episode in the scope of the ongoing series. Sometimes you need a transition episode or uh, issue if you need to unwind from the previous story, unpack a few things, and load the bases for whatever's coming next. Sometimes you need to do that. But again, as someone who only has this to work with... I, I feel like, for my Doctor Who fans out there, I feel like I've just watched part three out of a four-parter from the classic era with no other context. <laughs> a lot of running down hallways. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know why or what from or or what aliens are, are on whose side. It's just like, okay, right. Well, why don't you run down the characters? Tell me what you your impressions on the characters as we go through this. <sighs> Booster Gold is the whiniest putz I have come across in comics in a while. That's fair. And I think there was a specific line that really kind of did me in on him. It was basically him going, you know what? They don't respect us. And I can't, I like, I cannot imagine him saying it in anything other than whiny teenage voice. Why doesn't anyone respect me? Because you're a loser. Yeah. I don't even know you. I'm just watching you interact with someone who is supposedly your friend, and I immediately go, you are a loser. Everything that's <laughs> happening to them, they fully deserve. In fact, for the stuff they did that got them on kitchen duty and all that, they should be in prison, quite honestly, for the, the antics they pulled. So, Beatles, right, they got off easy. And Booster is being pretty much an uh, ingrate and being completely unwilling to accept Except that he, you know, has created the situation for himself. Now, see that the thing, Beetle is coming off only slightly better in that he's not being whiny about it. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he is accepting like, okay, look, we screwed up. And so that's something. But then, you know, we get without knowing the full details of what it was they were doing, but just realizing that whatever it was, it was his plan to begin with. I'm like, oh, you're the Ferris Bueller style jackass. Okay, so that's why I hate you. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> so that's that's two swings and a miss in terms of uh, do I like anybody? Jean shows up and Jean, he does a little bit better. He is dry humor. He does okay. I don't love his material, but, like, I can hear it all in, like, the voice of the guy who's currently playing him on Supergirl, and I'm like, okay. Okay. I'm good with this. He cracks a lot of jokes in this one, actually. Uh, he's usually the straight man, but he actually has quite a bit of one-liners, which is impressive. Uh, but then, then, 
we have to bring in Guy Gardner. Ugh, the worst. I refuse. This is the only time you will hear me say these two words in association with him. I refuse to refer to him as Green Lantern. He that- does not deserve the name, the title, the ring, or really to be able to walk under his own power. <laughs> The fact that I am restricting myself to referring to him as his actual name, as opposed to any litany of things I would much rather call him, is an exercise in extreme self-restraint on my part. I hope you realize that. Well, I, I hope you picked up the context clues that you're not supposed to like him. Okay, see, here's the problem. Almost never... Does it actually work for me that I, that I am okay with characters who are written to be annoying on purpose? I kind of hate that. And he is one of the most extreme examples I've seen in a while. For somebody that I am supposed to hate. And like, the thing is, I do. I hate you so much that I want you gone. I do not want to spend time with you. And I want anyone who is in the same room with you to mace you after the first sentence you say out loud. <laughs> well, that's that's part of the beauty of the character. Because, first of all, it, there's many situations. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The fact that you use the word beauty to refer to any human <laughs> being with that haircut. <laughs> well, you'll like where I'm going with this. Is that in any real world, world scenario, you will often find yourself in a group, whether it's a work situation or, I don't know, let's just say hypothetically a podcast network, where one of the people in the group is someone that everyone unilaterally hates. And um, I'm just saying that that kind of situation does happen from time to time. Yes, and- it does. But that's why I ex- I escape into media so I don't have to deal <laughs> with the kind of nonsense that I have to deal with in my day-to-day life. Look, I seriously think that the only thing that I've ever seen where I feel like they actually pulled off a despicable character who I enjoyed spending time with is Arnold Rimmer and Red Dwarf. That's the only one I've got. Every other time I can think of, I hate the, these characters. I never like them. Well, he does get his comeuppance at the end, which, uh, you know, a bunch of flames in the face from fire, which is good. If his comeuppance is not ejection from the entirety of comic books publishing, then no, it is not sufficient. <laughs> Fair enough. Again, I, I, there is no one that will defend his actions, but there are people, beyond what happens in in this issue, there are people who will defend him as a character being worthwhile because there's a lot of interesting things about the character and why he's this way. Uh, the long history, I'm not going to go to it right now. He actually has brain damage, um, and it's actually Hal Jordan's fault uh, in a lot of ways. So that makes Hal automatically the worst. Anyway, so there, there's a lot packed into that character, and you have sufficiently hated him uh, more than you probably should. You're supposed to sort of enjoy hating him so much, like a J.R. No, Ewing kind of No, character. no, no. I, I, there's no joy behind this hate. Okay. There's just ha- there's just more hate behind this hate. I'm like <laughs> I'm like that I'm like that floating red xenomorph up in space. I am currently powered by hate. <laughs> I'm gonna drink my haterade over here and just. Uh. All right, so you got a couple more characters. Uh, what about uh, Mr. Miracle? There, I know you've got a thought on that. Oh, uh, what the hell? <laughs> Like, I like I, I can guess that something is wrong with him. Something must be. Yes. But because it is, because I have no context of before or after and only in isolation, there's just like, 
There's something clearly wrong with that guy. I don't know what or why or if I'm supposed to know. I just know there's definitely something wrong with that guy. I, I do think if if there was anything that's amiss a, a in this issue, it would probably be Mr. Miracle because uh, what you're looking at there, it's not even Mr. Miracle. It's a robot. Uh, it's a robot duplicate of him that's been left on Earth because he's currently out in space. And so some bad guys put a robot duplicate here on Earth to to basically fill the space so no one would notice he was gone. And the robot's a bit of an idiot. So where I think there's a bit of a miss here is all the other stuff, you know, Beetle and Booster doing kitchen duty, uh, you know, fire set with power setting off stuff. All of that was explained in the issue. You got, you were able to figure out from the context clues, like we said with like the reporter and stuff. There's nothing to lead you to figure out what's going on with Mr. Miracle. And it didn't even happen in this comic. It happened in a Justice League International special. So I do feel like they could have explained that one a little bit better. But yeah, that's what's going on is it's a robot and it's his first time at the embassy. And so that's why he keeps introducing himself to everybody which is pretty funny. But, you know, actually, interestingly enough about that, you know, we've talked about Guy Gardner, we've talked about Marshall Mayhunter, we've talked about Mr. Miracle. Those were the only characters actually in the issue that were in costume. And it, it's sort of funny because, you know, Marshall Mayhunter, he doesn't really ever change. So you could almost consider that as plain clothes. And robot, uh, Mr. Miracle's a robot. So really, it's just Guy Gardner. But the people in their superhero costumes actually go by their regular people names. Like, the Green Lantern is called Guy Gardner. Marshall Mayhunter is called Jean throughout the issue. Mr. Miracle is called Scott throughout the issue. Yet those are the ones that costumes. The ones who are not in costume, Beetle, Booster, and Fire, they actually go by their superhero names. It's sort of a weird reverse there. Well, I mean, it's a completely logistical thing because it's the way to ensure that the reader knows who's who when they're not in their normally identifiable costumes. True. The the offshoot of that is kind of an interesting reversal, but like it's a completely practical thing. And like the whole gag of nobody noticing that Mr. Miracle is just introducing himself with the exact same phrase over and over and over again because all this other stuff is going on. I can get behind the theory of that as a gag, but I didn't get to appreciate it as a joke because I was just left there going, what the hell is wrong with him? Mm -hmm. Because I couldn't get past that, I didn't really appreciate the joke until afterwards when I thought about the construction of it. And if I don't laugh when you tell it initially and only go, oh, that's kind of clever after I basically have had to figure it out for myself, then you you messed up the execution of the joke. Yeah, it's fair. I, I, I do think there's a few things that uh, in this issue that are like a wine get better with time as you reread it. Absolutely. As you dig deeper into some of this stuff, I find it funnier. And fun. Like I, I laughed hysterically at this issue when I reread it again tonight in preparation for this, whereas clearly someone is coming at it first time. You know, there's, there's a lot that's just impenetrable almost. So we talked earlier about, uh, again, uh, one of the reasons you were brought onto this show was because of the your extreme attached into 90s characters and, and comics and things like that. To me, I feel like this is like the antithesis of an extreme comic. I didn't see any pouches anywhere, by the way. Uh, But I think you're coming at this from a different angle. What's your thoughts? So here's the thing. In terms of tone, it definitely is very much not the extreme that was uh, permeating a lot of 90s comics. However, here's the thing. The bickering nature and the personalities on display in the team are actually very standard for the time. Hmm, You could look you could look at a team like X Force or Brigade or oh, I'm sorry, I just threw up my mouth a little bit. Go ahead. Or any number of these things because you had all these teams where the whole thing was they weren't a cohesive unit. They butted heads. They were jerks to each other. They were jerks in general. They weren't good people. They didn't function well. The only difference is that in those other comics, that was treated like it was bad 
badass, whereas here it's treated like a joke. But the actual construction and dynamic within the team is very, very similar. It's just being played to a different end. Hmm. Okay. Interesting observation. I, I, I agree with you about the character interaction. That's very fair. I do think, though, the rest of the construction, which in a, uh, you know, extreme typical, you know, let's just use the next book, for example, the, the plot was always tell the character where they have to go. They go somewhere, there's a misunderstanding, and there's a giant fight with, you know, a full page splashes of people with their mouths open yelling and all that stuff. And all of that is absent from the issue. So that gives me oh, yeah, some yeah, yeah. The, the actual narrative, the plot, the story, absolutely. But I, I'm talking strictly in terms of the the build of the team, yeah. the personalities at play, and the dynamics between them are actually were all hauntingly familiar to me. Only you could see extreme in this, but I, I, I get what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of skipped over fire a little bit. Okay, yeah. Well, first of all, I don't love the fact that she is either in very short skirt and a low-cut tank top or a towel or this... Okay, this thing she's in at the very end, a- as good as the uh, the angles and the foreshortening was in the, on the cover, they really botched it on page twenty one. Where I would, I would agree with that. Where she's just standing. That first of all, she has the she has nothing to do with the scene. She is just there with her thumbs in her pockets so that we can see her navel, just standing there while other characters argue and. I guess the idea is that she's leaning forward, but it the the effect is of her body shape is this upside down pyramid thing where her hips and her waist look way too skinny for her shoulders and her upper body. Yeah, that's fair. That's absolutely fair. So visual presentation, I ain't in love exactly. I'm sure you think she's hot, but not in that drawing, but in general, yes. Now, granted, again, I don't have context for this. I also didn't love that her first spoken lines, um, which are with Guy Gardner, uh, bring up the reference of the of her destroying her clothes and needing new ones, and her reaction, uh, specifically her face, and this, oh, I hadn't thought of that. My immediate thought was, oh my god, she's an airhead. It's interesting. It, I didn't like that either. Uh, the whole bit, the, what it is, folks, is there, there's a bit where, again, she, she burns up her bedroom and then everyone keeps teasing her throughout the issue that she did it on purpose to buy a new wardrobe, because that actually happened several issues ago. She's still developing control of her powers, and several issues ago, she did actually burn up her bedroom because uh, she's not used to her new fire powers, and she was very excited that she got to go shopping. I will say that at no point do they, uh, at least in my opinion, they do not display fire as an airhead. She has some... I don't even know. Okay, so here's the thing. I think a lot of it does have to do specifically with that one panel on page 16 with her line of, oh, I hadn't thought of that. There's something about her face right there. Like, if the if the pose had been, I don't know, her smacking herself in the forehead or, or like, a look of, like, oh, man, like, annoyance. But it's just this totally vacant look on her face. No, I, I, I agree with you. And, and, that, and that is the plot point in here with her that bothered me in this issue. Because usually, she normally has a very active role in the story. She's very intelligent. She's extremely capable. Yes, she does use sex, as I said earlier, as a tool, which is perfectly fine in her case, um, but she's never, at least I don't recall her ever being displayed as vapid, and that she does look vapid in that drawing, and, and, and that plot line keeps going, and that's not something that didn't age well, that's for sure. 
Now, that having been said, she de- she did redeem herself a bit by the, the fact that she clearly set Guy Gardner on fire. Right. So and- I, I support that. <laughs> like, yeah. especially, okay, seriously. And that's, I'm trying to, what page is that? That's page 19. Mm-hmm. He should be in jail. Oh, yeah. Many times over. He's a horrible human being. He's absolutely terrible. He's actually caused international incidents multiple times because he's such a jackass. Okay. Like, I, I'm just, I'm just going to point out. Dear listener, an actual line spoken by a supposed superhero. I understand I'm not supposed to like him, but I am looking at the actual words. Come on, you were asking for it. And while I will make, to a certain extent, some allowances for the time, it being the very start of the 90s, the idea of you were asking for it being played as a joke, I am really, really deeply not okay with that. I'm well, not o- I'm not okay with a writer who would do it and I'm not okay with a character from whose mouth that would be coming from. But I think that what it's trying to demonstrate is that what he just said is so horrible literally in the same panel he gets a blast of fire in his face. So it's showing you when you have that kind of behavior, that's the kind of response that ha- should happen to those kinds of people. Here's the problem, though. I know he's still going to be in that building. Okay, that's fair. You're right. There's no there's no consequence because it's a sitcom. Exactly right. That's fair. exactly so. Like for me to for me to not be as frustrated with him, this needed to be like an equivalent of say a scene a, a party scene in a movie where there's some drunk jackass who makes a fool of himself, gets his comeuppance, and then we never have to see him again. That's true. I know he's still going to be there. I know he is still going to be in the room with her doing this. And that is why I actually don't think that that joke is okay, because he will not be removed. He will be allowed to remain there and keep doing that. And so that's why, and it really is that line. It is that is the use of that specific phrase you sure. were asking for it. And knowing that he that he will not be removed and he will remain there, I'm not okay with that being a joke. I totally get where you're coming from, and that's fair. Uh, and now, stepping away from that particular line for a moment, I do want to talk about that page in general, um, where you get his comeuppance, uh, you get the sprinklers coming on again, uh, you get all of that. What makes this page, to me, me, I, I enjoy the aspect I love about it is that you don't see Fire or, or, or Guy Gardner throughout the whole page. You're just standing outside of the room watching Mr. Miracle watching this, you know, in a weird transfixed way. And you're just hearing the bickering in the next room and you get to imagine it for yourself. And then the sprinklers coming on. I love that bit. I love how it plays out. If you can ignore that one line for a moment, I love the way it's all played out and the story develops in that way. The, the comic timing of the sprinklers coming on was really well done. And honestly, it is hard to do comic timing timing on a comic book page exactly because it's very hard to control the pacing in a way that makes for good comic timing generally you have to settle for just funny lines but that is that because of the page layout and the way that it kind of ticks over because it's a two by three grid the the rhythm of it makes for really good comic timing for when those sprinklers come back on yeah i i just i laughed very heartily at this page uh because of that the com- 
comedic timing of that. So uh, running through a other couple quick things. We mentioned the cat. So actually, the cat ends. I mentioned to you it goes to Justice League Europe after this. It actually becomes a reoccurring character in Justice League Europe. So there is long term consequences for the cat showing up. Uh, Power Girl actually adopts the cat and it becomes her pet. Guy mentions the Three Stooges marathon. This issue uh, that also is another reoccurring bit. They talk about Three Stooges all the time in the series. In fact, in the Justice League Europe issue, uh, we deal with Three Stooges again. So uh, they they like to carry that joke going. Now another bit of comeuppance in this issue too for Guy is why watching the cat uh, tear into him, which is hilarious. Him rolling around the ground, fighting with this cat, and it works well because the cat's yellow, and so his ring has no defense against it. I kind of wish that had been pointed out because that didn't occur to me until you said it. Oh, really? Okay. And uh, additionally, we only actually get one good panel of him struggling with this cat, Mm -hmm. and that's on page 17, where the thing appears to be wrapped around his head. Right. Which is a good shot. I I like that image, but unfortunately after that, it's largely just it's it's all obscured or it's just his legs in the air or something we don't like i it was a little weird for me to hear you say how much you loved watching him get taken apart by the cat i'm like it's literally one panel dude well like it the fight goes on for a while but we only get one good look at it but it to me it's similar to the scene at the end with guy Gardner and fire that's all off panel like the fight's still happening and so in my my mind is filling in the blanks because you know like you said you see the legs up there you see marshall manhunter looking at it and says, you know, if I think the cat's even in the slightest danger, I'll intervene, implying that Guy is completely incompetent. At the end, when Guy's carrying the cat away, you can see all the scratches all over Guy's face uh, on, on page 18. So it's those kinds of things that I love about that. See, the thing is, I don't think it works as well on that page as it does on 19, because 19 has the the fixed image of just this robot of Mr. Miracle staring through the doorway um, as all this is going on the on page 17 there's too much else going on i actually kind of lost track of the cat fight because it's changing angle and position of the of, of the viewing angle on every panel um we've got some shots that are just zeroed in completely on jean and on fire and i lose track of the fight that's going on in a way that doesn't happen later on with uh with page 19 with mr miracle outside the door i'll just chalk that up to you because clearly i think the artist has done their job here because you see uh in every panel there's something you know whether there's stars flying through the air or the pillows flying by or the it's not like i ever lost track of what was happening it's just that it feels chaotic in the wrong way i think they're trying to make the fight seem chaotic but that's not what i'm getting it's just jumping to a reverse angle and in it just it's not engaging me in the fight it's pulling me out of it i'm still aware of it it's not like i lost track of what was happening all of the visual presentation of page 17 was distracting me from the fight instead of zeroing me in on it i just figured out where you find your joy you find your joy in not finding joy in things that's what it is no i find my joy in slowly gradually removing it from you (laughs) mission accomplished (laughs) 
because Nathaniel never shuts up, we're going long. So I'm going to, I'm going to race through the rest of my notes super quick here. So there's a great bit at the end. Uh, there's a meta part about making fun of the justice league comic book writers, which is funny. Uh, cause the in world, in the world of this issue, there is a justice league comic book. So they mock their own writers, which I thought was funny. So they stole that from Marvel too. Yes, they did. Uh, why not steal from the best? Then, uh, when we talked about the space stuff with, uh, by the way, that that's Disparo, uh, which is a, a character, a long time justice league bad guy. And he's coming back. But at this point, as the reader, we don't know that. But uh, on Earth, there is a uh, what's called the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex, which is tracing, or Canberra, I don't know, it's very hard to say, it's Australian, uh, that are actually tracing all this stuff. Uh, it's in, appeared in the comic book, so I reached out to our good friend Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast. Turns out, this is actually a real place. Uh, it's commonly referred to as the, again, tough name here, Tidbin, wow, Tidbinbilla, I absolutely said that wrong, Tidbinbilla Deep Space Tracking Station. And uh, for those of you keeping track at home, by the way, Canberra is where, in fact, Paul Hicks works. Uh, he doesn't work at the tracking station. I'm sorry. He just works in Canberra. Well, okay. He claims he works. I think he just plays in the internet when his boss isn't looking. But uh, according to Paul, the real-life tracking station was actually damaged in the Australian wildfires uh, just last year. So, uh, folks, I, ju- I just want to notice that on, on our shared notes, Google Doc, Shag has Canberra written out phonetically, and he's still mispronouncing it. I can't pronounce a lot of words. <laughs> I have a long history. I have a podcast all about Firestorm, the nuclear, nuclear, I can't say it, nuclear man. So there we go. <sighs> Some things we just have, each of us have our own cross to bear. So now uh, this, I will point out that this uh, space tracking station, it continues Keith Giffen's uh, 1980s, 1990s strange fascination with Australia. Uh, if you remember the invasion miniseries focused on Australia, the manga con issues of JLI from 14 and 15 focused on Australia. There's a lot of other JLA references. Now this, I think Keith just has an unhealthy love for Crocodile Dundee. That's the nearest I can figure. So I don't know. Good eye, mate. Hey, there it is. So Booster has that lunch meeting with Claire Montgomery. She is going to become very important. And I don't necessarily want to say it, even though most of the readers at home already know. Uh, I'll just say that she has a long history with another important member of the league. And we will find that out in the issues to come in the months to come. And I don't know if you noticed or not, the restaurant that they ate at, it's actually called Shea What? Which is... I did I did notice that, yes. Clever pun on Say What. Love that. Now here's something. In doing my research for this episode, I found out this is actually the second time Booster has left the team. I didn't realize this. Now both times have been related to personal wealth. He was previously ejected from the Justice League after volunteering to side with the Manhunters during the Millennium miniseries. Now I realize most of your eyes just glazed over because I mentioned Millennium. But anyway. So uh, apparently this happened again in Millennium and in Booster Goal number 25. And I'm like, what? Booster left the league previously? I had no idea. So folks, this is going to require some further investigation on a later episode of this podcast, I think. I I think the bigger question is, they let him back? Why? (laughs) Well, interestingly enough, when he leaves the team, this this issue, this isn't one of these where he's like back on the team two issues from now. This is going to have very long-reaching consequences. And uh, really, you have to wait all the way till Justice League quarterly number one, which is several months away, to find out where all this leads to. Um, regarding the art, you know, uh, we mentioned Adam Hughes did the art, and with a lot of different pencilers this issue, there is some nine-panel grids which suggest Keith Giffen was involved, but uh, there's a lot of creative layouts in this. And now, you and I are having different opinions on this. I'll have to share some images with you later, but I really, really do feel that uh, Adam Hughes is controlling the cheesecake in this issue. Yes, fire is wrapped in a towel. That's in the script. That's probably not his fault. He's actually quite restrained, other than that one shot at the end where her body's all strangely proportioned. And the other thing is, he's drawing people in regular clothes throughout entirely, almost the entire issue, and they look great. They look, they look believable. Like I, I will grant you that 
I'm kind of annoyed on principle, the fact that she is wrapped in a towel for most of her time in this issue. I, there is considerable restraint in terms of what kind of shots and angles and poses are done with her while she's in the towel. I will absolutely grant that. I'm still a bit annoyed just for the very existence of the towel. But yeah, no, it, it could have been much, much worse. I've read Witchblade. I know how bad it could have been. <laughs> So, all in all, I absolutely love this comic. I thought it was an absolute blast. I mean, I gen- I've read it now probably three times in preparation, just getting ready, and have laughed harder every single time. Uh, I don't think the same can be said of you, Nathaniel. Would this encourage you to try another issue of the series ever? Nope. <laughs> like, com- I, I, here's the thing. Even reading it the first time, I could get how the humor is probably playing off of existing dynamics, known things about the characters, so I could roll with the fact, or the idea that a lot of the humor is going to be enhanced by having a better knowledge of these characters. The problem is, I don't really want to get to know any of these characters based off what I'm seeing of them in here. So that's more the issue. It's not that the jokes don't work or that I can't see the value in them. It's that I'm just thinking, I don't want to spend any more time with these people. That's fair. I mean, they're not exactly very good people, so... No, they're not. And <laughs> I have better uses of my time than spending it with spending it around characters that I have no respect for. Which explains why you don't come around the network all that often. So, all right, oh, folks. Oh, dang it, they're on to me. <laughs> all right, now, with that, we're going to move on to the coveted... Plahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Nathaniel will pick one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Nathaniel, you're the guest, unfortunately, for everyone listening. What is your nomination for the Bwahaha Award? I'm sure you will not go with me on this, because I'm going to go for a very small moment and a very tossed-off line that isn't dwelt on, but that is why I love it. This is not highlighted at all, but it is the one thing that made me laugh out loud. All right. So Booster goes to his lunch with uh, with Ms. Montgomery. And you know, the, it's the last panel on page 12. She says, Booster, I'm so glad you changed your mind. And he jumps in with the sign. Actually, Claire, I think my mind changed itself. And she goes, whatever. And then just keeps <laughs> going. It's the whatever. Okay. I love the whatever. I love that he does this tortured, trying to, like, take what she said and make a cool, maybe even slightly flirty response. And she's just like, whatever. And just <laughs> it just plows on with her own thing. I love that. I love that she doesn't even acknowledge that he tried. I thought that was hilarious. I didn't see the humor in that moment until I heard the inflection in your voice. Audibly, it worked much better for me because uh, you really put the, the punctuation on that word so it works well. So I can see the humor in that when I hear your voice say it, which is, by the way, the thing of nightmares anyway. But you're right. <laughs> I, I did not pick that moment. I picked a moment that we spent quite a bit of time talking about already. Basically, it's uh, the entirety of page 19, which is Mr. Miracle standing in the hallway watching uh, where we don't see the argument between uh, Fire and, and Guy Gardner, which now has been poisoned because of that one line that you have really pointed out that I, I can't unsee now, but the comedic value of him watching, us not seeing the fight, Guy getting hurt, and the sprinklers coming on, I just feel like that was a beautiful culmination of the whole issue and sort of put a button on everything that had happened. So that's my nomination. And you know what? I will go with that. <gasps> like here, Here's the thing. I know for me personally, I tend to favor banter. I tend to 
favor dialogue jokes that's where my heart lies but comics are a visual medium and as a visual gag as a way of telling the humor of the of the scene visually even though that visual is just watching somebody stare blank-eyed through a doorway at what's going on (laughs) this is a very well delivered visually based page that as i mentioned before has a terrific sense of comic timing and timing is an incredibly hard thing to control on a comic book page turning a blind eye to that line which i i'm only doing for these purposes that is an incredibly well executed page of comic humor all right folks you heard it here first nathaniel just admitted that i'm smarter that this joke is better and that this joke won so i'm gonna take that as a win you guys heard it right I, I, I think we might want to play the tape back on that and uh, and get a second opinion on uh, on some of those statements. <laughs> hey, I'll take what I can get. All right, let's just congratulations to Fire Guy Gardner and Mister Miracle. You have won the coveted Blahaha Award. Wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. So there we go. All right, now Nathaniel, I need to ask a favor. The embassy, as you noticed when you came in the door, is a complete disaster. After the cat ran through here, the sprinklers, everything—it's it's horrific. Now, while I go cover just. Europe. Would you mind hanging around here for a bit and helping kind of clean up? I realize you're the guest and all, but actually it gives me kind of a sick, perverse pleasure assigning you a crappy cleanup job. Yeah, well, the thing is, if I don't do it, nobody else will. Your entire MO is just leaving a catastrophe in your wake, usually in <laughs> podcast form. So just disaster to the ears for all who are left trailing behind you. I'm not surprised. Uh, sadly, I really can't argue with that. All right. Now, don't worry, Nathaniel. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And after this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to the Paris Embassy for the 13th issue of Justice League Europe. My name is Jesse, a Trekkie. A radiation wave hit and I got shot through a wormhole. And now I'm on some distant corner of the galaxy on a podcast, an index show about a strange science fiction series. Help me, please. Is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm co-hosting with an insane Farscape fan. I'm doing everything I can. I'm just looking for a way home. What the Frell, a Farscape podcast. Available only on the Council of Geeks Podcast Network. Dr. Fate. Dr. Midnight. Starman. Johnny Quick. Wildcat. Power Girl. The All-Star Squadron. Firebrand. Amazing Man. Huntress. Cyclone. Sandman. Mr. Terrific. Commander Steel. Seven Soldiers of Liberty. Infinity Incorporated. Those are just some of the celebrated and beloved heroes associated with Earth 2 and the Justice Society of America. These daring mystery men and women banded together in 1940 to form the first super team in comics. They inspired a decades-long legacy of heroes who would follow in their footsteps. And now they've inspired us to launch a new podcast. Justice Society presents a new anthology on the Fire and Water Podcast Network featuring a variety of theme shows with different hosts celebrating some of their favorite comics and characters associated with the golden age of comics, Earth 2, the JSA, and beyond. We'll launch this new series with an ongoing show called Justice Society Presents Crisis, in which Rob and Shag go through each of the classic team-ups between the Justice League and the Justice Society. Then joining the podcast feed will be the Starman Chronicles. Chris and Cindy continue their coverage of James Robinson's epic series from beginning to end. 
Later in the year, Ryan Daly and Max Romero will tackle the Vertigo title, Sandman Mystery Theater. And two years later, Ryan will cancel it. That's probably. Then in the coming months and years, we'll be adding further ongoing shows and one-off specials celebrating other beloved characters in comics related to the JSA of any era, from the 1940s to today. Join the fight for justice and subscribe to Justice Society Presents on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe, number 13. from break and I'm here with our second co-host for this episode. Now folks, remember those stories about young underage men who would lie about their age to join the army? Well, our co-host right now kind of did that, except like the nerd version. He lied about his age, he was only 12, so that he could work in a comic book store. Oh my gosh, and it started him down uh, you know, the wrong path. You know how kids are. But ultimately, I guess it turned around because he's actually a comic book writer. He's published. He wrote his own critically acclaimed comic book series, White Picket Fences, plus several comic books for licensed properties such as Kung Fu Panda, Littlest Pet Shop, Cut the Rope, Richie Rich, Shrek, and so much more. Folks, please help me welcome to the show Mr. Matt Anderson. Welcome to the Paris Embassy, Matt. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. This is wonderful. So Matt reached out to me uh, completely unsolicited, like, yeah. I don't know, eight eight years ago or something. And, okay, that's not true. Right. But uh, many years ago, and said, hey, you, you don't know who I am, but damn it, I need to be on your show. That's exactly right. <laughs> I was like, I, I I don't know. Sure. Whatever, man. And so that's how that works, folks. Sometimes you just got to throw your weight around. You were my first fan letter. <laughs> Wait, you weren't a letter hack growing up? It was the longtime listener, first time writer, <laughs> the podcast version of that. Uh, no, I wasn't. Actually, I, I, I did write one letter to a comic. It was a DC. It was Showcase 93 with Blue Beetle when it was oh, nice. uh, Brian Augustin written two or three parter. And so I wrote a letter saying, like, you got to give him his own series and I, I just did the, the classic like why doesn't he have a series he should have he should be more popular than spider-man like i and they didn't publish it and you know, <laughs> they were why they were wise not to well, obviously, the whole putting pen to paper thing worked out for you. I mean, dude, I, I was talking to my wife uh, and my daughter about some of the stuff you've been running. Kung Fu Panda, Lily's Pet Shop. I mean, these are all household names. How did you luck into that gig? Yeah. So as you said um, in the intro, I, I wrote an original series called White Picket Fences, which uh, I created with some people that I knew growing up. And I did that one and we pitched it to a, a publisher and the publisher picked it up. And it just so happened that at the time that they... They were releasing the issues of White Picket Fences, the publisher Ape Entertainment, they were called. But they were actually in negotiations to get the DreamWorks license. Mm. I, and so I was brought on to kind of help land that. So I, I did a lot of work writing kind of what the comic book take on, you know, like what we would do in a comic and, um, for Shrek and Penguins of Madagascar and Kung Fu Panda. And, you know, here's this really small company and they land the license based 
based on what we presented. And as a result, I got the gig to write Kung Fu Panda. So sweet. I mean, it was crazy because I really like White Picket Fences is Leave It to Beaver meets the 1950s science fiction movies of the time. That's awesome. And I was told science fiction doesn't sell in comics, which was hilarious. Like that I was told when pitching it. But oh, my gosh, which I just it's almost like astonishingly stupid to hear someone (laughs) tell. But that Guardians of the Galaxy idea, it'll never take off. And, you know, and that's exactly right. I guess what I took it to mean is like this was based on Earth. It was, you know, a throwback to like 50s style stuff. But it it struck the right chord with the guys that over at 8th. They were happy with it. And I went right from that to Kung Fu Panda, which was no learning curve whatsoever. (laughs) 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 Leave it to Beaver, Kung Fu Panda. I mean, it's kind of the same thing, right? Yeah. You know what? Actually, I to this day, I'm grateful that like kind of first well-known property I worked on was was Kung Fu Panda because the whole premise of that essentially is the fanboy that made good. I mean, that was, <laughs> that was and that was how I approached it actually because when I was doing that, only the first movie was out. So oh, the, wow. Okay. So this was, I can't even remember what year it was. So the first thing that I had that was published was technically the story that bridged the gap between the first movie and the second movie. And I, once I watched it, I was like, oh, wait a minute. This guy's just, he loves martial arts and Kung Fu and all that stuff. And then he gets to be like the champion. The ma- And I was like, well, I love comic. I've loved him forever. And now I'm getting to write them and people are paying me. I guess I can handle this. <laughs> like this character. <laughs> So. You you wrote the splinter of the mind's eye of the Kung Fu Pandaverse. Wow. You know, I, I like to think so. Actually, it's funny because I very rarely read reviews or anything like that. But like I was looking up something one time and I realized that there's a fan fiction of a character that I created that they... No for- way! And, and it was very weird because I was like, it blew my mind because again, I I went from just this one little comic to, you know, these things that, you know, I know they're not selling because I was writing. I mean, it's Kung Fu Panda. No, it didn't really matter that Matt Anderson was writing at that, but, that <laughs> but yet there was these little things that like, there were no villains, you know, I mean, it came after the first movie. So mm-hmm. there's no villain died in the first movie. I don't have a, so it's like every time I had to write a story, I had to create a new villain, which means that I think I gave some part of my being to Sony and DreamWorks. <laughs> they own one sixteenth of your soul. I'm sure there's right. an action figure out there somewhere that like is something that I, you know, um, but, but it was fun. Yeah. I can see all these kids. Oh, I got Richie Rich. I got Shrek. I got Co- Oh, I got Matt Anderson. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> the Matt Anderson figure. Oh, man. Matt was the peg warmer. Sorry, folks. Right. Yep. <laughs> you know, I'm the one that's like, you get like a little piece of me with each character and then like I'm the surprise <laughs> character you build and it's like, Build what? the figure. <laughs> <laughs> that is perfect. So anyway, that is awesome. Yes, yeah. And I got to do a lot of that fun stuff. So we, we know how you landed in the world of DreamWorks. And, and I'm guessing you're the kid in the silhouette on the moon with the fishing pole. Oh, but yeah, yeah. That was me. Beyond that, what is your personal origin story specifically with the Justice League International? Like, how did you discover the book and what made you fall in love with it? So this actually ties back into my time in the army, I guess, when I was lying down my age. Uh, no. But, no, actually, in, that, in the comic book store. So even before I started working there, which was like four store credit. I was the kid on Saturdays that like bagged and boarded the back issues and, you know, filed them away. And But I got that job just because I was hanging out there all the time. So I guess the guy felt sorry for me or just knew I knew where everything was anyways. And, or he figured if you're going to be there, he might as well get some work out of you. <laughs> it, well, I, that was it, probably exactly what it was. <laughs> and actually, you know what? Also, to get the job, there was two interview questions. One was just what my favorite 
favorite comic was at the time, and it was Roger Stern on Superman. Just oh wow, he, you know he was kind of bouncing back and forth at that point between I think you know Byrne had left a couple years prior, so it was like sometimes he was on action, sometimes he was on Superman. But that was you know at the time, and then also did I know what Annex was? And Annex was a supporting character introduced in a the Marvel annuals in like '92 where they oh tried to create a new, and he had, oh yeah and he had his own miniseries and since I knew that that was a Marvel comic at the time that showed that I spent way too much time in there because the guy that ran the store said we haven't sold one copy of that comic <laughs> Dude, I was working in the comic book shop when those annuals came out. They came yeah, bagged with the bagged, trading yep, card yep, and all yep, that whole thing. Yeah. yeah. I don't even remember that character yeah, or book. Amazing. And I was working there. <laughs> well, so was I the following week. Uh, right. <laughs> no, he was he was um, the amazing Spider-Man. Uh, and it was Jack Jack Harris, the guy who wrote the Ray miniseries the, mm-hmm. uh, for DC. But yeah. So anyways, but I would just dig through the back issue boxes. I never even knew what I was looking for. I just wanted to just look through everything and I've always been by and large a huge more of a DC fan than Marvel or anything else DC's the best for me and and I and I, I you're not wrong I and I will always say like I will read other things but DC is like that's the publisher that I'm like I want to know everything like I want I want to know street names for DC mm-hmm. comics <laughs> with Marvel I'm happy to kind of know where they take place but like I don't need the details but DC I want the details like I want you to be you want to know Clark lives on Clinton Avenue or exactly. whatever it was, right? Right, right. Yes. So I would always go through the DC back issue boxes and I got to the Justice League, you know, this series. I, I know we can go through all the names, but I was captivated by the cover of Justice League America 37, which. Oh, this episode. This okay. episode where, you know, with booster, fire, beetle, ice, like the intruder alert, like. I stared at this cover and of course it was bagged and boarded and I wasn't working there at the time and they had the store had a policy like you do not open bagged and boarded comic Mm. or you have unless you have the employee help you and I think I was so captivated I never asked him I guess now that I think about it (laughs) but I was so taken with this cover because I'm like what what's got these guys cornered like why (laughs) why are they so free it must be the biggest threat from the to the universe ever (laughs) and it was so funny though but like I was at that point with collecting where I was like well I better I gotta be there from the beginning or like not you know like with with a series you know if it's number 37 like well I don't know what is happening in this so yeah I think I would just look at the cover and I'd put it aside and I would look at the cover and I'd put it aside and then when I did start working there since I got paid in store credit basically at the end of every shift I you know I knew how much like I had accrued that day I would then just buy stuff and my first purchase was Justice League number 37 wow same day, um, I don't remember the issue number offhand, but it's the one that looks like the boxing cover or the boxing yeah, poster. Yeah, oh yeah, the guy 52, Gardner. I think. Yeah, I think so, yeah. That was the other, because I was like, this one series and I saw these two covers and I'm like, okay, these covers are nothing alike. It's the same series, but by and large, the same creative names on the cover. What the heck is this? And I, so I bought those two on the same day. But now I'm feeling bad because, you know, we, we all just heard Nathaniel trash Justice League 37, which was completely <laughs> unfair, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> we sh- we should have had you on there, Matt. I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> that and it gives me a chance to make fun of Nathaniel. So hey, you know what? I I don't even know him, and I'll make fun of him. <laughs> 
So love at first sight for you. Yes. Did you have a favorite just league America, just league Europe, you know, where, where do you fall in this? Yeah. So I uh, love at first sight. Definitely. And I used my store credit for multiple Saturday shifts and I got myself up to speed. You know, I went back and thankfully, you know, honestly, the issues weren't that hard to find. I, at the time, so this would have been just leading up to the death of Superman time or right, right around then. So we're talking about like what's currently on the shelves would be like the Dan Jurgens sure. Justice League. So, you know, at this point, the issues are still not that old. So they weren't really that hard to, to get. And I was just completely enamored with the series from the start. Like, I loved how weird it was, especially compared to everything else that was around it. It was lighthearted, but it wasn't really lighthearted. As I was, you know, reading the series for the first time, and I would be talking with people that would come into the comic book store. And at this point, we are like, Spawn is, you know, about issue nine or 10. So, I mean, we're, we're like heavy into like the image extreme Wildstorm era. And, and here I am trying my best to like sell these back issues <laughs> of a Justice League that people just saw get demolished. <laughs> Right. Yeah. You know, it's like, no, these characters are awesome. It's like, well, okay, we know who they are because we just saw them get put into a coma, lose their powers, you know, so it was not an easy sell. And I, and I, and I, I, but I ended up liking that at at a point, you know, I kind of went really quickly from like, I need everyone in the world to buy this comic and love it as much as I do to being very content with it being something that I was almost like a secret. (laughs) You found your happy place. That's wonderful. I did. And, and so, yeah, I, to circle back and answer the question, though, I guess the my favorite is when it's Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus. Well, we got a good issue for you then. Right. So wherever that takes you, because that can mean Justice League quarterly, that can mean so. But if, if, it, if those two are there, that's my favorite. Awesome. Well, again, uh, by happenstance, we ended up with one of the few issues D. Mateus scripted for this time. So why don't we get into it? Yes, definitely. Folks, this is Justice League Europe number 13 from DC Comics cover dated April 1990, but it was on the shelves March 6th, 1990. Cover price is $1, four shiny quarters. And the cover, not the interiors, but the cover is by Bart Sears. Matt, why don't you tell us about the cover? You know, it's it's one of those covers where it's funny because like, I think it took me forever to understand what I was actually looking at, but I don't <laughs> okay. mean that in a bad way. It's kind of a play on the cover. It's, it, it's similar to the cover of Justice League America 37, in which you've got heroes, in this case, Captain Adam, Elongated Man, Power Girl and Flash is not easy to see there. <laughs> this is another one of those things where I I think I looked at it so many times. I'm like, oh, Flash is there. Oh, okay. And they are being reflected in an eye, in an eyeball. And they seem terrified or curious or intrigued, depending on which character you are. Uh, Power Girl seems particularly kind of interested in, or excited, I guess. I, I think that's how we're supposed to read it, but it I'm not little, entirely sure. Yeah, she's kind of, she's got like a, ooh, look on her face. Like, oh. And Ralph, uh, elongated man's nose is twitching. It's Captain Adam that is funny because it's like, it's definitely the booster gold 
of like handout kind of like, whoa, what is this? But I don't know what he's supposed to be feeling. I, I think maybe that's part of my issue with the cover. It's like... It, it definitely leaves you wondering. Yeah. So if I can echo on what you're saying, it, it's very much a parallel of Justice League American number 37. And I never noticed that yeah. until I was getting ready for this episode. I didn't I can't. Either. I mean, I knew it was Furballs 1 and Furballs 2. I never put together that this is sort of like, you know, Furballs 1, you're looking like, say, from the cat's eyes and you're looking out at the Justice League America mm. characters. Here it's the verse. It's you're, you're the Justice League uh, Europe characters looking at the cat and you're seeing your own reflection. Yeah. But yes, Captain Adam has the same hand reaching out just like Booster Gold does. You know, uh, you could parallel fire to Power Girl if you wanted. Oh, and on I the, I'm literally catching this now. Yeah. Yep. All right. I know where you're going. Beetle was in Ice's arms and here Elongated Man is in Flash's arms. Yep. I mean, it is it, clearly Bart and Adam coordinated this. Right. It, what's interesting though is yeah there's definitely coordination but you kind of wonder were they just given like a description of what what the other was doing and just meant to go off of it because obviously they are meant to be a set but they're not so close that they're meant to be you know like they're not they're not well the four the foreshortening of the hand coming at you is it's so close and it's just the opposite hand well actually i guess if it's a reflection it's actually the same hand yeah um so i i think there i there was definitely some significant Get level of coordination obviously there. but but i guess it's just funny because it's almost like the styles are i mean obviously adam hughes and bart sears are very different but like yeah i don't know i i guess how about this it's very telling that like as familiar as i am with these issues i i never put it together yeah me either this. and I'm shocked. And if I hadn't sat down with the two comics to read at the same time, I don't know that I would have. Right. So I also a compliment to Bart Sears that the fisheye lens kind of effect as, as it's warping around the cat's, you know, yeah. uh, convex eye is really well done. Oh, yeah. I mean, no. that's that's not easy to do. And I guess I should should add that, like, it's a good cover. I, I love the cover. It's just it's a weird partner piece. You know, it, it kind of like it. I don't think it works as like a when you take the two together. But like his composition is good. And yeah, it's it's intriguing enough and it's almost kind of weirdly off-putting. Like I said, it took me a while to ever even notice what what it was that I was looking at. And I and I actually like that in a cover a lot because that intrigues me. Well, I, I love the I love the covers even more now. Now that I made the connection, I'm, I, I think they're fantastic. Yeah, so. I, honestly, Let's, in this recording, the fact that Flash is wrapped up in Elongated Man makes me love this cover. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that I just noticed that Flash is there... <laughs> embarrasses me. (laughs) Well, it's a a perfect pairing for Ice and Blue Beetle. So, all right, let's get into the inside here, folks. Plot and breakdowns by Keith Giffen, a guest scripter. That's right. Guest scripter, J.M.D. Mateus, stepping back in the role after being gone for several months. Penciler, Chris Sprouse. Inker, K.S. Wilson. Letter, Bob LaPan. Colorist, Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor, Kevin Dooley. And editor, Andy Helfer. And the story is called Furballs 2. Why don't you go ahead and start us off, Matt? The issue starts out. We're outside the embassy. We see that there's, you know, some, some work going on. But what's most interesting is we've got some school children being let into the embassy and we find out quickly that there is a tour going on that is meant to boost uh, public relations between the the league and the locals. So having some school children uh, touring this Justice League embassy, what could go wrong? Uh, (laughs) So as we go into it a little bit more, we get some more banter back and forth between Cap and Catherine Colbert. They're they're really pulling the the little will they, won't they, or is she into him, or is she just kind of make weird 
weird comments, you know, but we get a, a little good gag, I'd say, of clearly Cap's French lessons are not going well. He uh, <laughs> does tell the uh, the teacher of uh, the students she thanks him for for letting the students come for the tour, and what does he say? He uh, asked her if she would dance naked with you in a bowl of onion dip, which <laughs> is an impressive sentence to mangle out, I guess, when you're trying to speak in another language. <laughs> so we get uh, the tour, um, which uh, initially Catherine seems to be leading, Cap standing back, but then she tries to turn it over to Cap, which uh, he's not exactly happy about. He kind of stammers through it, and thankfully uh, good old Ralph comes up and saves the day and does some good shtick. Ralph speaks the language, he you know, so he can give the tour, and he takes over for Captain Adam, and definitely Ralph would be the one you'd want the tour from, is, is my takeaway. He's the jokester here, and, and he's fluent in the language, so. Makes um, a great master of ceremony. Exactly. Then we go on to the cat. The cat shows up. He or she, he, I don't know. I guess we don't know the gender <laughs> At this point, we don't, but I'm pretty sure it's a boy. Right, yes. I will say this. Grumpy cat uh, (laughs) pales in comparison to this cat. The the design on this cat, well, I guess we'll get into it, but Sprouse draws this cat amazingly. This first page that, like, the first page when we see the cat in this issue, he comes out, you know, teleports in, comes out, and looks as disheveled as can be. Grumpy starts wandering around this embassy. He catches a little bit of Power Girl and Cap talking, continues his exploration where the cat realizes or sees that there is another guest quote unquote guest of the Justice League it's actually a cat burglar uh, or a thief (laughs) and it's what Jean Jean Dijon is that That's what I got too, man. <laughs> which, which is a wonderful name. He dressed uh, very much like a n- late 80s ninja, but it's a <laughs> cat burglar that is trying to steal from the embassy, which I, he knows where he is, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He knows he, exactly what he's doing. Yep. Okay. And these are priceless works of art. I mean, they mentioned right. it in the tour. Yeah. Okay. There was this moment where I had, and I, and I kind of had to go back through the issue because I was like, I wonder, like, but you're right. You no, know, he does. Okay. Because I was thinking, like, maybe this is that thing where it's like, Oh man, like drilling through like the you think you're drilling through the bank wall, but you really drilled into the police station, and you're just <laughs> should have took a left turn at Albuquerque. Exactly, but anyways, beyond the fact that this Jean Jean de Jean narrates to himself excessively, which is always welcome in my opinion. Consequently, he steps on the cat's tail. And that is not what a sly cat burglar would want to do under any normal circumstance. And then, especially with this cat, you really don't want to anger it. But he steps on its tail and then he just boots it out of his way and continues narrating. And then we jump back. We're back with the tour. Ralph is, looks like he's kind of pulling out all the tricks with the kids. He's bending his arms and twirling. And the kids just want to know where Batman is, (laughs) (laughs) which is fantastic. It's such a great gag. And... And we get a little bit more of Cap and Power Girl talking. Some good dialogue between the two of them. And also Flash and Crimson Fox make their appearance here. And have a nice little uh, uh, riff on uh, the X-Men, which I appreciated. You can correct me if I'm wrong. The place right now where the tour is, is the, the training room for the, the Justice League. And Crimson Fox, being the newest member, is obviously still learning her way around. And she finds out that this place is called the Menace chamber? I'm not sure if that's actually the name of it or that is what she's calling it. I, I kind of see that as a total riff off, as you, like you're saying, Danger Room. Yes. And so, yeah, I'm not sure if that's the official name or just what she's calling it. I was definitely wondering, because she's the only one who says it. No one else 
Ralph mm-hmm. calls it that. I mean, Ralph calls it the training room. So yeah, whether it was like just her interpretation of what it was, but I love Menace Chamber. <laughs> I think it's just JMD Mateus having some fun. Yes. So anyways, so they're in the Menace Chamber and we get a little bit of parallel action. We see the cat continuing its kind of explorations while the tour is happening and a lot of it's kind of just little bantering back and forth. Kids are bored. Batman's not there. Also, the menace chamber is set to the lowest to be completely safe. It's basically just running the tutorial. So that makes the kids yell boring and Cap is still sure something's going to go wrong. He's kind of been getting a little grief thrown at him from Power Girl and even Sue Dibney for kind of being too pessimistic or too worried, but he's convinced something's going to happen and lo and behold, the cat wanders up onto the uh, control panel and with one press of one button, which is not probably the safest way <laughs> to have your training is uh, to be able to like change the settings by one button, but he pushes the red button, which turns it to, and I'm just going to read it because this is a quote I love. It says, alert, this unit is now programmed for maximum resistance. All but Captain Adam are to exit the chamber immediately. Which, <laughs> first of all, as an alert, it's super wordy, which I love. <laughs> Right. Because <laughs> that's what you want in an alert is something you have to listen for. And the kids are excited now. Right. Exactly. But I, I love that everyone leave except for Captain Adam. So this is really the Captain Adam setting. But Demetrius had to be a little wordier than that. And then the Crimson Fox and Flash are on the receiving end of the now amped up security system. But uh, Cap feels like he should go in there and help. But they don't want to worry the children. And... He tries to inspire confidence in the children and is going to speak to them in their language. And once again, his French, not so great. He says to them, don't worry, I can handle it. Boys and girls, six dwarves are eating my aunt's toenails. <laughs> he storms off and it's the entire class does the classic ha And he zooms past Jean-Jean de Jean, who's still lurking around, interestingly close to, uh, I would think he would want to go away from all the noises, but hey, you know, reminder that he's there. And then we get Cap saving Flash and Crimson Fox and the kids are all excited because they basically saw way more action than they were promised. Every kid loves a little near-death experience. Oh, exactly. I mean, they went to NASCAR. French NASCAR. (laughs) French NASCAR is called Menace Chamber. That's what DiMatteis was really going for. Uh, (laughs) And then we do a little one-page interlude where we cut to the Soviet Union and we've got Blue Jay uh, continuing his escape from being held in captivity and he is attempting to get to an embassy to the JLI looking for asylum. All right, I'll take it from there. So Jean-Jean de Jean, as we love saying, yes. uh, continues stealthily around the embassy stealing paintings. You have to say his whole name. I, exactly to. right, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's about this time that Sue discovers that the training room settings were changed by someone else. Now, we of course realize it was the cat, but she assumes there must be an intruder. Later, after she leaves, the cat, being a cat, jumps back up on the monitor station and proceeds to sleep on the keyboard and the red alert button. Of course. So the Justice League America and New York react to the alert and jump in their starboard of 
Avenger. Uh, and that is not actually what it's called. But if you know what that is, you know what I'm talking about. And the Justice League of America fly to France to help. Now, when they arrive, everything seems normal. So they do the logical thing and send Guy Gardner in to do reconnaissance? Right. Well, anyway, Wally is awoken from a nap about this time with the cat sleeping on his head. Uh, Guy sees Wally through the window struggling with something. So Guy flies in but ends up in a rematch with the cat. So the comedy of errors continues as the rest of the American League jump into action, terrifying the children who are on the school tour. Then uh, elsewhere, the cat sees Jean-Jean de Jean sneaking around and recalls Jean-Jean de Jean stepping on his tail earlier. So uh, then, well, well, a lot of Jeans. Then, well, Jean Jones (laughs) and Captain Adam are privately chatting. Jean-Jean de Jean goes running by and screaming as his face is being attacked by the cat. So later, the issue ends, as it often does, with Catherine Colbert and Captain Adam chatting in the captain's office in the, in the evening hours. Catherine informs the captain that the news thought it was all staged for the kids' benefit. They've all had a great time. But to Captain Adam's dismay, he finds out that Power Girl has decided to keep the cat as a pet. <laughs> Next issue, the JLE go to the Cannes Film Festival and discover why you ought to be in pictures. Oof, all right. Oof. So, what'd you think of the issue, Matt? Oh, I love this issue, and I'm actually really happy that this is the one, the episode that I ended up on. Even though it was actually the Justice League 37 that I, when I first messaged you, that I was angling for. But I have to say, this is the superior of the two issues, in my opinion. Wow. Um, that's okay. I'm, I'm gonna start, and that's not always easy to say because I always, I do look at Justice League America as kind of the one that everything need, you know, that. that that's the template one. That's the one that should be the shining star. It's the flagship title. It's the yeah. flagship title. With this particular two-parter, this setup was wonderful. And um, so, and I honestly, I wonder, like, I don't think I've revisited this issue as much because again, kind of like I think you said earlier, like the Just League Europe is not, you're not as familiar with it. You don't have it memorized the way that you have the, the other title. And like, that's kind of the same thing with me. So like this both felt like a, a new read and revisiting an old friend at the same time. And that is, you know, one of the best experiences. That's a nice way to put it. And I really feel like maybe DiMatteis, because at this point, previous to this, what, William Messner Loeb's had scripted three, four issues? Some, some, it was something like something that. It was, like that. It, was, it was several. I mean, that's fair. Right. Yep. Now, and now what I don't know, again, obviously, is, you know, were these done the way, you know, chronologically like this? I'm assuming they were. This might be DiMatteis, like, with a little bit of a break. You know, he's obviously been on the main book, but it was a couple months, you know, with a little bit less of a workload. I know he, you know, was getting pretty burned out with the multiple Justice League titles. So And he's writing Dr. Fade and he just came off of Mr. Miracle. Right. I mean, he was, he was writing a lot of, and I think he's still writing the Spider-Man at this point. I mean, he's writing a lot of books. But yeah, exactly. So, you know, when he stepped away from Justice League Europe, you know, it was that def- I remember it being about like, I just was writing too many of these. So that he comes back, it's it was weird to see him credited as guest scripter because it's like it's a JLI book and Demetrius is never a guest but but you know yes he was and he came so refreshed I think at at this with this one and part of me wonders if it's like now these are the characters he hasn't actively written for a couple months or whatever it was and maybe he he came refreshed and really just had some some fun with them and I smiled reading this entire issue and and you can tell like that they conveyed the fun that the issue was supposed to be in that like because even when a joke was bad it still made 
you smile. <laughs> and I think that's always a good testament that like, you know, it's not painful and groan inducing. It was like, that was a bad joke and I'm still laughing. Well, one of the hallmarks uh, of a DiMatteis script uh, and, and Giffen plot together is that, uh, there, especially when it's a comedy issue, is there's, there's a lot of various pieces. You're not entirely sure how it all fits together mm-hmm. or, or one piece you might be like, eh, I don't you know, that one's okay. But then it all comes together at the end. I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. Like the Jean-Jean de Jean, Jean, you know, with this internal monologue about being poor and then correcting himself. It was all, it was funny, but it it wasn't grabbing me. I'm like, this is just a little, you know, okay, it fits, whatever. You know, I I couldn't see it until, you know, like a clever sitcom, all the elements come together and everything had a reason. And it's all about the cat slashing his face at the end as he's running away. It all builds to that. And it's just brilliantly done and brilliantly built in that way. You know, it was funny because with his narration, with Jean Jean de Jean, it's like, like, there's a part, you know, initially I was like, this is Nort narration. Like, it, <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it's very much just the idea of I've been living in squalor on the edge of starvation, you know, but well, not really because I'm wealthy and, you know, or I'm, it's like he's his own setup and punchline in his <laughs> own narration, which is a, is a Nort thing. That's like, he's not bantering off of anyone. So it's, it's a very unique to DiMatteis scripting that even similar comics of the, t- not of the time, but just any, any comics that were kind of going for the same vibe, like they they can't match that that element, which is the one character set being set up in punchline. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, I have to admit, since we're talking about Jean Jean de Jean, I will admit I am horribly embarrassed that I did not put it together until your recap that the issue about the cat also has a cat burglar. <laughs> I, I cannot believe as like a slap my forehead V eight kind of moment. Like oh my gosh, yeah. did not put that together. So I am embarrassed by that. It's funny, though, because these are those moments where, you know, you you wonder at what point was that idea, right? Like, okay, we're going to do this cat two-parter and what's going on in Europe? Uh, someone's a cat burglar? You know, it's, you just start like right. <laughs> wondering. I, I got to imagine it came from the bit where Sue realizes there's an intruder because she she comes to the that's right. right conclusion yes. for the wrong reasons. Exactly. And so that I think that's where it probably all fits. Yes. Now, if I had one criticism of J.M.D. Mateus in this issue. Yep, it's the same one that I have. I know that. Probably Wally? Yes. Yeah, Wally is lecherous Mm -hmm. to Power Girl again. And as a reader, we thought we were done with this. But I think what it is, is Bill Messner Lobes, who was also writing Flash, got us past that. Right. Uh, Got us past Wally's behavior. And unfortunately, what's happened is DiMatteis' return for this issue, he set this sort of stuff up. So, you know, maybe either he's not aware that Bill Messner Lobes moved us past it, or he's just leaning on what he wrote before. Did this come really after, you know, he's had a few month break? Or was this, you know, done when he was still kind of in the throat, like the mix of it, and it just kind of shifted to a little bit later, you know? So it's possible it could have been written earlier, or um, it may have just been a case. I mean, who's to say J.M.D. Mateus was even reading the Bill Mr. Loeb scripted issues. Yeah, I guess that's the other thing because, you know, what Crimson Fox wasn't in the... Didn't didn't she showed up for the first time in a Loeb's issue, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know what? That's another good point is uh, Crimson Fox had a very thick French accent yes. in issue 10 when she first appeared. 
Beard. She's back here. This is her first issue, by the way. We've ever seen her as part of the team. I mean, she technically joined at the end of 10. She said she would join. Right. This is the first time we've seen her with the team. No accent whatsoever. Right. Nope. Now, that could be an indication of just a scripting issue, or it could be an indication that it's a, a different person in the costume, which is something we'll talk about in a few issues, I right. suppose. Right. But leading up to recording this podcast, I'd kind of been going back and rereading the run just in general. I revisit flagship title frequently. I did an issue one through now this 113 reread of Europe and I could not stand Wally. And I mean, I know we've kind of covered it, but like the thing about Wally, like in his own book, even before Loeb's was writing it, like when Mike Barron was writing it, like he was never that bad. Like he might have been like kind of like a ladies man type, but like the way Demetrius takes him to just like he's on a walking assault charge like <laughs> yeah or, yeah you know and I, and, and it, it's weird because it's like normally Demetrius is really good at kind of finding like the most extreme parts of a character and playing that to the benefit of the story and or to for comedy or you know whatever and it's like he just seemed to really miss the mark on on Wally maybe it was out of his hands I don't really know I'll share some thoughts on it I mean I feel like in the way Wally would speak to Power Girl in, in those conversations I feel like he was sort of writing the same way he wrote Guy Gardner. Yeah. Because if those same words came out of Guy Gardner, yep. we actually wouldn't be as disgusted. We would just roll our eyes and be like, oh, yeah, Guy, guy. says <laughs> basically the, yeah, yeah you're, you're totally right. But because it comes out of Wally, who's kind of our generation. Now, I, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but our generation speedster. Yeah. I mean, we all grew up with Wally. We all felt kind of a connection to him, especially as you go into the Mark Wade run and everything. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, so we, we don't want those words coming out of his mouth. It's, it's okay for Guy to be that despicable, but not Wally. Yeah. Which is completely wrong on our part. I mean, we shouldn't be okay with it coming out of anyone's mouth. No. But we, it's just, we're more accepting. Right, exactly. And then that is totally true. Now, see, I did the cat and cat burglar for you. Well, you just did the Guy and Wally thing for me. Because <laughs> it, it had not even occurred to me. Yeah, yeah. in a way, he was setting up a parallel. Because mm-hmm. Guy is a popular character, and everyone always loves the bad boy character and really in this collection of from their initial lineup Europe didn't have anyone that obviously fit that slot right so they made Wally it which I I, you know and it's very strange because you know again how protective DC especially was at the time you know when they launched the initial series and they couldn't have Flash for that because Mike Barron was launching that series and it's like so it seemed like they were very protective over these characters and making sure that if they allowed them to appear they were written in line with what DC wanted. So it's interesting that at this point, may- maybe the Giffen and DiMatteis were just so proven successful that like they were hands off. But it's weird that DC let that Wally be that extreme. And it, yeah. it was very much a sour note in, in such a fun issue. Now, I, well, one of the things I was going to say with these kinds of issues, the one, the humor ones and the ones that kind of the out and out comedy ones and the ones where there's a lot of jumping around. I think one of my favorite elements that that you get is when you just check in with a character. So we get like what one panel of Metamorpho in this, right? He's know? sleeping, and he's and he's, <laughs> and he's sleeping. But we do from Jean Jean de Jean, um, we do know that he is falling asleep watching the Three Stooges in French because we learned in like one of the first episodes that's how he was trying to learn the language. Exactly, and, and Three Stooges got mentioned in JLA thirty seven, which is obviously a Demetrius thing yes. now. Yeah, something that 
that kind of strengthened my absolute love for this series is I'm a huge old time radio fan. And I was even as a kid, because as a kid, I was 90. Uh, <laughs> and DiMatteis dropped so many Jack Benny references some very on the nose and direct, some not. And I think I get every single one of them. And it is just one of those things. So when you see those kinds of things reoccur, like Metamorpho going with Three Stooges and stuff, like, or that sticky humor, that is Dimitris through and through channeling his old time radio love. And I'm in nerd heaven because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm reading up a B grade team of Justice League characters referencing Jack Benny. <laughs> <laughs> it is a, a level of uh, a layered nerdiness that I find very comforting. Oh, well, GMD Mateus was always sprinkling in either literature or pop culture, whether it's Star Trek right. or, oh gosh, I forgot. Some of the earlier episodes had Rocket Red quoting some famous Russian novelists. Yep. In this one, uh, they, they referenced Norman Vincent Peale a couple times, who I actually had to Google. Oh, yeah. Power uh, of positive thinking, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, the minute I heard the name of the book, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. I know what they're talking about right. now. But, but that's, uh, that's, again, D. Mateus reaching into that, I don't know if I want to call it pop culture, but reaching into the bigger world to sprinkle into scripts. Yeah, oh, it's yeah, great. definitely. But it's just so interesting, though, because it's another case where you go, like, this is a reference that will pass over so many people or confuse or what and and just that they put so many of them in each in each issue it's something that i will always appreciate about about the series so one of the interesting things is this is some of chris prouse's earliest works his first credited mainstream work was just two months before this which is really quite amazing uh, considering he's so early in his career it looks really really good now it reminds me a little bit of some of the cartoonishness of some of the ty templeton stuff mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of the faces are a little bit off, but I mean, come on. It, this, given the guy's level of experience, he did a fantastic job, and he only gets better from here. Yeah. You mentioned his drawings of the cat. I, I loved that because, I mean, the cat, to me, looks like basically a yellow uh, version, and maybe a little less cartoony, of Bill the Cat. I mean, he's got the squinty eye, the tongue sticking out, the hair's fried. I mean, he looks like Bill the Cat from uh, Bloom County to me. Yeah. You know, the tail's like crooked, kind of bent in some, you know. Yeah. <laughs> for him being so early in his yeah he's such a good fit for this issue in particular you kind of mentioned the ty templeton ones it reminds me a little bit of the i'm gonna mess up his name what is it the the guy who did the the norton scarlet skier issue artless or something. oh um tom artis yeah so yeah <laughs> He kind of reminded me of that too in the comedic pacing and everything like that. And I, I was actually really surprised to see that this was Chris Sprouse, but man, it's really good. And I think, I don't know when Justice League quarterly number one is from the, in relation to this one, but that, oh, it's gotta be soon, actually. It's, it's a few months away, believe it or not. I think probably the next big job that Sprouse went to from this issue is probably what that 80 page story. Oh, it could be. It could be. I mean, yeah. and his stuff looks so good in that one. And, and, is a, an improvement even from this issue, and that's that's fat. Oh yeah, I mean the guy the guy's amazing, and he, he goes on to do Legionnaires, if I remember yes, right, yeah, which was... is not too far in the future, and that is super polished. Yeah, so yeah, no, and he, yeah, he still does such amazing work now. So, so we, since I was mentioning the cat, I will mention the cat's hijinks of you know walking on keyboards, sleeping on buttons, sleeping on people's faces, all that, attacking people. Uh, as we've all learned this past year, 
here, these are all legitimate working from home hazards. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I'm on board with these jokes. Yes. And then uh, I I have one nitpick because I'm a nerd and that's what we do. So the Justice League America, right? They they get the alert (laughs) that there is an emergency in Paris. So what do they do? They jump in their shuttle and immediately fly to Paris. So a couple of things. One, they didn't even call in route to make sure, like, I get that they got in the shuttle immediately, right. but they, but it takes a while to get there. They could have picked up the phone on the way and been like, um, is everything cool there, guys? Right. And then the other is, I actually did a little research here, and in 1989, the Concorde set a world record for the fastest flight from New York to Paris, and that was three hours. Now, let's assume the Justice League's plane is a little bit faster, so let's say it's just two. They still spent two hours in a plane flying to Paris and didn't bother to call, and the tour... I was going to say, and we know the most unrealistic thing there is that that tour with those kids is still happening. Right, exactly, exactly. So, so the, the timing doesn't quite work, but you know what? It's a funny comic book. Right. We shouldn't care that much. I was going to say, you know what? I have one question about that, though, because I was just thinking, do, maybe they covered it. I know the the teleportation things are notoriously unreliable, you know, in the embassy, but could they not use them? I know. Right? Guy just teleported the cat there, right? So why couldn't they? Because it's not like it's not like the cat broke the tubes when when it came out, which would be would make sense. Okay, it went through and then somehow it shut down the receiving end. But otherwise, it's like you'd think, okay, emergency alert, like we're gonna teleport right there. Well, it could also be you know sort of like a, if there's a fire in a building, don't use the elevator, right? Kind yeah, of thing. True. It, you, do you want to tel- risk teleporting right into the heart of it? But right, it's priority one alert. So maybe you don't. You know, after everything that happened with the the Cahoons and. Uh, the invasion, maybe they they don't trust the teleporters in a priority one. Right, that's true. But you could at least send like one person ahead. (laughs) But anyways, yeah, it's just because that was that that thing. I was like, they got there in incredible time. Exactly. So maybe they don't need the teleportation. So (laughs) I don't know. So that pretty much covers Justice League Europe number 13, part two of Furballs. You've already said that you think that this one is better than the uh, part one. And that's a that's a bold statement. Yeah. I don't know if I'm there. Number 37 has a real special place in my heart. Some of the setup with some of those guys is just shedding tears. I'm crying so hard and yeah. laughing. And, and that's no dig against this issue. I mean, it's the same writers and scripters. So it's not like I'm digging on one team versus the other. But uh, they're both great. And uh, I, th- I thought this issue was a lot of fun. And uh, as you mentioned, I, I haven't read these Justice League Europe issues since publication. I didn't remember any of it. And I genuinely laughed a bunch reading it. It's been a, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, it, it's wonderful. And I'm so glad that I went back and revisited it because... I think this will be one that I continue to revisit pretty frequently, actually. keep I'll keep it pretty handy and not just filed away. So, all right. Well, folks, uh, with the issue done, now it's time for something I like to call... Character Spotlight. This is where the guests will be asked to share a few thoughts on one of the characters from this issue, not really an origin recap, uh, but more like, you know, where the character was in the DC Universe before joining the JLI and what kind of impact the JLI had on their lives, either during or afterwards. And uh, today, Matt is going to talk to us about Blue Jay. Oh, yeah, Blue Jay, which is it was an interesting challenge because, honestly, it's a character that appeared very early on in what probably the first couple issues of Justice League mm-hmm. and kind of disappeared appeared for a while and 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 actually and honestly in this issue has one page you know right um, yeah but the character actually created in the in early 70s 1971 mm-hmm. first appearance was in JLA the first series number 87 
And I think one of the most interesting things about him as a character is was kind of a riff on Ant-Man, Wasp. Yep. But it was actually kind of a done in response to the fact that Marvel was doing Squadron Supreme, which was their Justice League riff. So this is a riff of a riff <laughs> or a riff in response. Um <laughs> <laughs> or at least that's where he started. Um, created by uh, Mike Friedrich, writer Mike Friedrich and artist Dick Dillon. Essentially, you know, can can shrink down to seven inches, can fly. He's got, you know, with, with the wings, which I think depending on the version, like sometimes they're attached, sometimes they are part of more of a suit. And as a character, kind of defining trait, what he's de- defined as having is actually kind of being unsure of himself, <laughs> which... That's fair. Is an interesting, which to be fair, I mean, so it comes from a world that destroyed itself. Mm-hmm. And they, he was part of a, what was it, a group, uh, the Champions of Angor. Yep. Angor is the planet or the realm. Um, Blue Jay came, to, you know, came to this reality, um, in hopes to help us avert the nuclear war fate, um, in destruction that his planet suffered. He has been trapped for a while. And, you know, as we saw in this issue that we covered, he has escaped from where he's trapped and he's on his way to more of an active role in in the Justice League. But he's also a character that doesn't have much of a publisher. I mean, beyond... So he's in this series. He will briefly lead a mission. He he is a member for a while. And once the Justice League Europe ends, like, he disappears for a while. He kind of popped back up in the one year later DC era for, like, one mission where he teamed up with the new Aquaman. <laughs> Wow, I don't even remember that. Aquaman, Sword of Atlantis character. So the one that looked just like Aquaman, oh, but was... Joseph, I remember yeah, him quite yeah, well. Yeah. yeah, It was him, Livewire, Superman, and Blue Jay were a team for... Um, I want to say it was the um, Back in Action, maybe? The Kurt Busiek, Fabian, Nisiesa? Oh, uh, okay, yeah. Kidnapping. So it had a lot of obscure... So showed up there and then did return to the pages of Justice League, actually. Had a pretty critical role for a little while in the just before the new 52 when uh, writer James Robinson and Mark Bagley, the artist, uh, was writing Justice League of America. He showed up in their very first issue, seemingly was killed off, but appears later not dead and pretty integral to the plot, actually. And it all kind of wrapped up with, you know, Dark Side Apocalypse. Uh, I mean, it was uh, probably, I would say, the highest profile appearance for the character. And, and then beyond that, you know, that, that's almost, that's pretty much it for him. Which is not a bad run for someone that really started, like I said, as it seems like the response to a riff. And I don't really remember them ever really developing his personality all that much. Like, I know he was on the team, right. uh, but I don't, he doesn't stand out in my memory at all. No, no. he does, and, and that's the interesting thing is, and obviously you'll get to it when the issues come up, but he is put in charge by Catherine for a, like, I think it's a single mission. And that is maybe the time you get the glimpse into kind of his self-doubt. But honestly, what's interesting is that's not that different than kind of how Captain Adam has been leading this team, Hmm. you know, very much kind of questioning their own abilities. So I, you know, whether that's really what Blue Jay was intended to be, or if that's just kind of picking up with the flow of the way the series has been going, I I don't know. Because yeah, you said not really much personality. I guess not a bad run, though, I guess, in terms of just being kind of likely created more as like a a throwaway. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know. Right, yeah. It was supposed to definitely be a, a one-issue kind of nod to the uh, Avengers. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, so. And he looks great. And he looks fantastic under Bart Sears' pencil. Like, if you look at the Who's Who entry for Blue Jay. Yeah. Uh, it just looks – I mean, he looks – I mean, he's got muscles upon muscles upon muscles. Well, so does every Bart Sears character. <laughs> exactly, right. But, yeah, no. It's – I mean, it definitely would be one of those characters that I think a good writer could probably do a lot with because there's just the bare bones there even after all these years. So – Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the recap on Blue Jay. It's been a while since uh, we've we've thought much of him, and uh, he's going to be part of our future, so it's good to get a refresher. Yeah. Now we're going to head into everyone's favorite part of the show, where we nominate the... Plahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Matt will pick one moment, and they will be awarded the coveted Blahaha Award. Now, Matt, you're the guest, so you get to go first. What is your nomination for the Blahaha moment? All right. So I'm probably going to steal yours, but... You I, have no idea how many people have said that and been horribly, horribly wrong. I know, I know. <laughs> I, 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 I kind of wanted to actually say that, so when I'm wrong, it seems like there was more suspense. But I, <laughs> but I already kind of spoiled it. Like, it's Captain Adam's mistranslations. Especially the second one, one about the things eating his aunt's toenails. Um, right. Not only does it like set up like the great like off panel, everyone laughing, blah, ha, ha, but it is just, it is an amazing non sequitur joke. And it is just a perfect, what was he trying to say that he mangled it that much? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like. Like in these days, we could like Google Translate, like reverse it, like type that oh, in course. and see what it. But like, just to think that like anything close to those words <laughs> was what he was, you know, trying to say. But yeah, so I'm gonna say his boys and girls, six dwarves are eating my aunt's toenails. It, and he says it with such authority too. Like you know, he's doing this to inspire right. confidence in the kid, and you get the genuine blahaha response. That is the um, I'm coming to save the day, but it's dwarves eating my aunt's toenails. <laughs> well. You are correct. That is not my pick. Um, I went for the more uh, building and building a building and the payoff at the end, which is when the cat comes roaring down the stairs. Captain Adam has fallen backwards down the stairs, embarrassingly. <laughs> and at that exact moment, the Justice League of America smash into the embassy, <laughs> you know, saying, nobody move, the embassy surrounded. And the kids all start screaming in terror because the Justice League of America has completely misread the situation. Right. That, to me, I genuinely burst out laughing the whole issue is a comedy of errors yes. and it just it escalates and escalates and escalates and this is the this is the big payoff of the escalation and so that that was my pick yeah so mine is more situational yes yours is more in the dialogue so now we have to decide which one is the uh the better moment Ooh. make your case sir all right so in making my case my case is going to be i'm throwing in the towel whoa now, I will say this. It's the Captain Adam joke is hilarious. The mistranslation is hilarious. But you are right about the perfect, just the way it perfectly builds. And it, and it hits like a great punchline where all of this nonsense comes together spread over two issues. So it's longer than normal, you know, mm -hmm. in that sense. And within that, within what you chose, like, I guess the one thing we didn't even mention is, you know, the cat attaches the guy's face again. <laughs> so like so yes i bow to yours and say you've got the superior joke 
Well, thank you so much. I, I hey, you know, yours was good. And again, you brought the wahaha literal, you know, in the script, wahaha yeah. moment. So there's a lot to be said for that. But thank you. I will take the win. So congratulations to I guess it goes to Captain Adam and got and uh Marsh Manhunter, I suppose. It really could go to the whole team. I was gonna say I, we'll think, it, I think it's like an ensemble award, you know, at that point. There we go. All right. Congratulations to the Justice League Europe and Justice League America. You have won the coveted Wahaha Award. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. All right. Now, Matt, I need to ask a favor. Would you mind hanging around the Paris Embassy for just a bit and putting all the paintings that Jean-Jean de Jean tried to steal back into their frames and back on the walls? Because I really can't trust Rex or Ralph with this task. If I do, they're they're going to purposely replace all the paintings with like Three Stooges things or Velvet <laughs> Elvises or something. Would you mind helping out? I'm glad to help out. I really appreciate that. Now, don't worry, Matt. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And while Matt's taking care of that for us, folks, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called... Justice Log. All right, now before we get into your feedback, just a little bit of news. Volume 2 of the JLI Omnibus continues to get into people's hands. Lots of folks have been tweeting pictures of themselves holding up the Omnibus and tagging JLI Podcast. Keep those coming. Let's keep celebrating this massive achievement of publication. Now, Wonder Woman 84 has been released featuring their version of Maxwell Lord. And in the credits of the film, you can catch a special thanks, including some recognizable names, such as Keith Giffen, J.M. DeMatteis, and Kevin McGuire. Awesome that they got recognized in the movie. Now, if you haven't been following Kevin McGuire's social media recently, you should check it out. He's been drawing recreations of some of his famous JLI covers, including issue number 6, featuring Captain Marvel about to smash Martian Manhunter with a boulder, and issue 16, the Bruce Wayne-James Bond homage. And from the apparently-everyone-knew-but-me department, late-night talk show host, comedian, and former Saturday Night Live weekend update host Seth Meyers is a massive JLI fan. In fact, his Twitter profile pic is an original drawing of Seth wearing the blue beetle cowl as drawn by Kevin McGuire himself. How awesome is that? So share your love of the JLI with Seth on social media, folks. And hey, feel free to draw his attention towards the podcast, too. Just saying. Now, this is the part where you folks got to get out on the social media, use our hashtag FWPodcast, or tag us at JLI Podcast, and share your love of the JLI, these issues, any thoughts on this particular episode. As I always say, it's about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. Speaking of building the fandom, uh, I do have a request. Just putting it out there. If you haven't left us a review on iTunes yet, please consider doing so. It really helps raise the profile of the show and attract new listeners. Now, truthfully, we have a ton of iTunes reviews, which is awesome. But we haven't received any new ones in a couple of months. So, hey, if you're enjoying the show, please do us this favor. It's one of the biggest helps you can provide to a podcaster. And if you don't, well, I just might have an idea where to send that pesky alley cat next. And remember, uh, for iTunes, if you leave a review and you're outside of the United States, please let me know because we have to filter iTunes properly to see your reviews, and we'll assign you the appropriate embassy. I should also probably mention the show is available on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music as well. I have no idea if there's a way to leave reviews on those platforms. Uh, if you listen on one of those platforms and you figure out how to leave a review, let me know. Now, we're going to be getting into your comments, folks. Again, this comes from our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Also, emails, social media, just pulling bits and pieces because you guys leave so much feedback every episode. We'd be here for hours if I tried to cover all of it. So, this time out, we're going to be talking about the most recent episode where we covered JLA number 36 with my guest Mike Gillis and JLE number 12 
2012 with my guest Gus Casals. First up, Gus himself. Gus Casals from our Argentina Embassy and guest last episode. Now remember, Gus has his own podcast, Alfred Pennyworth Presents and Legion 60 Years Later. Gus says, thinking about the Scarlet Skier means a propulsion and the Kirby influence, the contraption he used kind of resembles the one Orion uses, except that it's pulling instead of being stood on. Hmm, interesting, Gus. I hadn't thought about that. You're right, there is some similarities with uh, Orion's whatever he calls that thing. All right, up next is Jason Lady, author of the young adult humorous fantasy adventure novels Monster Problems and Super Problems. Jason writes, in my humble opinion, the best version of Scarlet Skier is Mike McCone's version in the Justice League Antarctica annual. For a joke character, he looks so cool. Hey, you're not wrong there, Jason. Jason goes on to say, the battle between the Metal Men and Metamorpho is a classic. You guys didn't mention one of my favorite panels in the book, where Dimitri and Buddy are fighting Java, and Dimitri's about to get clobbered and is like, friend Buddy, friend Buddy. And Buddy is ineffectually wailing on Java's back with a delightful sound effect of, rapida, rapida, rapida. <laughs> That's awesome. Then we heard from Jimmy McGlinchey from our Irish Embassy. Jimmy writes in to say, Irish Embassy here, and I'm a bit shocked to have learned from the recent podcast that us Embassy workers do not get danger pay. I was expecting all of that danger money to help with my Christmas shopping. Oh well, maybe I can sell these red skis that Nort gave me to get rid of on eBay. I see user Scarlet Skier 72 is interested in buying a pair. <laughs> Jimmy goes on to say, with regard to the acronym Legion appearance, is this person releasing Scarlet Skier not Larissa Malore, the second in command of Legion at the time? Oh, absolutely, Jimmy. And I'm kind of surprised I didn't say that on the podcast. I'm a big fan of hers, so sorry about that. Jimmy also says, I enjoy the humor Nort brings into the book, and I think Giffen and Demetrius are smart in spreading his appearances out so he's not completely overtaking the book. Apart from the Justice League Antarctica story, I believe his next appearance isn't until issue 51, which again is a one-off before a much grittier storyline. That's an interesting observation, Jimmy. You know, we, we do hear a lot about people's you know, potential frustrations with Nort, but yeah, maybe spreading them out was a good way to handle that. Then we heard from Tim Price from the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast, and the Batgirl and Huntress podcast. Tim writes in to say about Justice League number 36, about Nort's evolving look, I believe it goes all the way back to JLI number 14. Steve Lealoha gives him the terrier nose, a mere four issues after Nort's introduction. And in JLI number 16, McGuire continues with his issue number 10 schnoz. This can only mean one thing, that there's more than one Nort. It's as plain as the good nose on your face. Oh my gosh. And then Tim goes on with a whole bunch of G apostrophe hijinks, so of course he did. <laughs> then Tim writes, uh, I don't quite get the too much Nort mentality as he's a one-joke character. Do you get tired of Coach from Cheers? Laka or Reverend Jim from Taxi? Or dare I say, Goofy? I don't, but maybe that's just me. You make a good point. You know, there's a long history in sitcoms of sort of one-joke characters that are beloved. And why does Nort get under some people's skin so much? Hmm, something to think about. Then Tim goes on to say about Justice League in Europe number 12, I have to give two special call-outs. The last page and the look of surprise and joy on Demetrius' face in the panel just before his family is revealed. That was expertly done. And honestly, joy is not something our heroes get enough of, let alone something that Bart Sears is known for portraying. He's more memorable for scowling or angry faces. But that image of Dimitri warms my heart. And then the first page... It's my Bwahaha award, because in the bottom, there's a guy gardener lying unconscious, and there's these little tweet-tweet-tweet sound effects around his head. The universal cartoon iconography for being knocked out. Now, are they actually cartoony tweets, or are these sounds coming from one of the toys on the floor? I don't know, and it doesn't matter. I just love it. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Then we hear from Michael Kramer. He says, I unreservedly love Nort, but then I'm a dog person. I think the other part of the attraction for me is that when I was in middle school, I was the unpopular geeky kid, so I can relate to his odd man outstanding with the rest of the league. Gosh, middle school, geeky, unpopular kid? Uh, I don't know, Michael. I'm not sure any of us could possibly relate to that background. <laughs> You're in good company, sir. Then we hear from Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube 
YouTube channel, Liz writes, Ah, guy messing with Oberon. LOL. Sorry, that was funny to me. It's wrong to use mental illness in that way, but hey, it's Guy. He would do crap like that anyway. You know, Liz, you're right. And as we talked about this episode, Guy is pretty much the worst towards people. All right, then we heard from Symbol Pending from our UK embassy, uh, who hosts the Symbol Pending Power Girl blog. They write, As is my way, I came to Metamorpho the long way around with Element Girl. Apparently anyone but Metamorpho is cursed to have his power set. Wow, Symbol Pending. And not many people can say they discovered Metamorpho through Element Girl first, but you've told us your Sandman stories in the past, so I imagine that's where you came across her. Then we heard from Mike Dinas from our Pacific Canadian Embassy. Mike writes, It was interesting to hear your views on Nort. I still have a hard time with the whole issue devoted to Nort, but I'm slowly coming around to Mike Gillis's way of thinking that he's not a stupid character, that he's just a dork. Knowing that he's not a dumb character makes it easier to read stories with him in it. The Metal Men being forgotten through the issue seems like par for the course for DC. I'm an embittered Metal Men fan, so it was great to hear Gus have the character spotlight for the Metal Men. I would also agree with Shag that the Walt Simonson run of Metal Men are fantastic just for the covers alone. Absolutely, Mike. Simonson drawing the Metal Men was like joy in a comic. Now heard from Chris Franklin from the Firewater Podcast Network. He does shows such as the JLU cast, Batman Nightcast, and so many more. Chris writes, I think it would have taken a Nort more if he hadn't been redesigned as a mustachioed dog person. That design makes him look like Jock, the Scottish Terrier from Lady and the Tramp. The earlier Maguire design definitely evokes Art Carney's Ed Norton more as well. I'm still of the opinion that a little Nort goes a long way, but I have to admit my eyes just roll up in my head when I see Scarlet Skier and Mr. Nebula. I think it's partially due to their loose-leaf who's who entries, as those are the images that immediately come to mind. Just like the forthcoming General Glory, for me, it was just too much on-the-nose parody coming into prominence in the book. It's literally like, what the, invaded the JLA comic. A character like Nort doesn't violate the conceit of a standard superhero book like the others do, partially because he's not riffing on other superhero comics. That is all just my opinion, and I'm still enjoying the coverage as the series approaches the point I jumped off. But thankfully, I still had Justice League Europe to balance the yucks with the action. As soon as I saw this cover on the site, I immediately thought of poor Java and the sludge where his arms used to be in that big full-page reveal of Baby Morpho. Baby Morpho, Baby Morpho. Definitely a standout in the early run of the series. Well, thank you, Chris. I appreciate all that feedback. And truthfully, I read all of that just so I could sing Baby Morpho. I'm not lying. Then we got a couple of nice comments from a few folks. James Simpson says he loved the episode as always, and referenced he also was a fan of the Giffen, Dimitrius, and McGuire run on Metal Men. Also got some nice comments from Mark Baker Wright, who hosts his own podcast, Not Your Father's Autobot, and Gore Tolton from our Canadian Embassy, who hosts his podcast, Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. All right, folks, this is the part of the show where we thank everyone who shared the show on their social media timeline. We're talking Facebook and Twitter. It's a long list of names. However, remember, these folks showed their support and promoted the show. So it's important to me that we recognize these individuals. As people see this on social media, they become interested and we get new listeners and that's how our community grows. So here is everyone who helped promote last episode by sharing on Facebook or retweeting on Twitter. Our thanks to Andre TFG, Between the Pages blog, Bill from the Bat Pod, Billy Delicious, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Coffee and Comics, Collected Edition, David Ace Gutierrez, Dr. Jennifer Schwartz-Levine, Ed Moore, Fan Film Fridays Podcast, Frederica Hernandez, Green Lantern HG, Gus Casals, Homework the Podcast, Ian Gutierrez, James Young, Jeff Poyer, Jeffrey Brown, Justin Steiner, Connell, Lizanne Oswald, Luis Berser, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matt Ev, Max Romero and his It's Plastic Man and the Mirror Factory accounts, Michael Kramer, Mike Dinas, Mike Gillis and his Radio vs. the Martians account, Nuno Duarte, Doug Van Diver, Paul Kean, Pragmatic Gollum, Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast, Rob Kelly and his Digest Cast, Superman Movie Minute, Fade Out Podcast, and Pod Dylan accounts. Roger Preeb, Rolled Spine Podcast, Scott X, Sean Ross and the Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, 
Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, Tim Price, Tomas Corsi, Trent Lewis, Turbo Comics, Warlord Thanos Podcast, and Willie Yarbrough. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI Podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, folks, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is absolutely the best. And if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I really am sorry. It's probably the fault of Mike Gillis or Gus Casals. Let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. Please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Remember, our website is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. You can leave your comments on the show post there. That's where the majority of the discussion is going on. Also, on Facebook, you can find us as Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast, or on Twitter at JLI Podcast. And of course, our email is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Mike Gillis and Gus Casals for appearing on the most recent episode of the show. And my thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we'll see if we can bring Nathaniel and Matt together in the same episode. There was an idea. To bring together a group of remarkable people. To see if we could become something more. So when they needed us, we could make the podcasts. That they never could. In time, you will know what it is like to cross over. To feel so desperately that the comic is right, yet to fail all the same. Dread it. Run from it. March 2021 still arrives. Evacuate the network. Engage all defenses. And get this man a cold Mountain Dew. Ooh, a cold Mountain Dew. I haven't tried one of those. Nah, nah, nah. Make it warm. Thank you. Sun isn't something one considers when podcasting an event. But this <laughs> does put a smile on my face. the hell are you guys? The Merry Marvel Marching Society. We don't know where we're going, but we're on the way. A podcasting crossover mega event in the spirit of J.L. May. Coming in March 2021. Covering Marvel's fall crossover event, Axe. A vengeance. A cabal of evil threatens the Avengers and the entire Marvel Universe. 
Doctor Doom, the Red Skull, Kingpin, Doctor Doom, Magneto, the Wizard, Doctor Doom, the Mandarin, and Doctor Doom have banded together to pit Earth's mightiest heroes against foes they have never faced before. An array of heroes face enemies they are totally unfamiliar with. But who is secretly pulling the vengeful cabal strings? And can the Avengers take down the true mastermind before his hidden scheme succeeds? Featuring podcasts from Third Degree Burn, Back to the Bins, Avenger Spotlight, Coffee and Comics, Comic Book Time Machine, Doom Speak, Fan Holes Podcast, Fire and Water Podcast Network, Head Speaks, Into the Weird, Justice Not Entirely Dissimilar to Lightning, A Thunderbolts Podcast, Longbox Crusade, Married with Comics, the Quantum Cast, Resurrections, an Adam Warlock podcast, Rolled Spine podcasts, and Views from the Long Box. Marching its way to your favorite podcatchers and hosting sites in 2021. Act of Vengeance, a true story. Okay, folks, we're back from break, and yes, it does appear the JLI teleporter has brought both Nathaniel and Matt together for us, but thankfully without the cat. Now, first, Nathaniel, my thanks so much for appearing on this episode. I'd like to say it's been a complete joy, but, I mean, let's face it, it's you. But in the meantime, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you on the interwebs if they so much uh, wish to hear more of you because maybe they hate themselves? So, dear listener, if you need a reprieve from this individual who, with whom I have been talking, <laughs> then you can find my stuff largely by looking for Council of Geeks is where you will find the stuff probably most relevant to most of the listeners of this podcast. You can find me on YouTube where I talk about all sorts of things from Doctor Who to Star Wars to Marvel movies and basically anything that comes up uh, and across my mind. Now that is the more polished product. If you want to see something a little bit rougher, a little bit looser, there's also the Break Room of Geeks which basically contains reviews for stuff that for one reason or, or another I don't feel fit on the main channel so if you need even more of me you can go there and of course you can find me on twitter and instagram under council of geeks and if by any chance you have any interest in my thoughts on my experience as a gender fluid person you can look for vera wild wild spelled w-y-l-d-e because i had to do as pretentious as humanly possible <laughs> that's also youtube twitter and tiktok for that one as well and if you want more of me in podcast form you can find the council of geeks podcast feed, former home of 90s Comics Retrial, currently home to What the Frell, where I go through every episode of Farscape with Jesse Gender, and of course, right here on this network, you can listen to Tough Like a Girl, where my partner Liz and I go through trade collections and graphic novels featuring female protagonists. And also, if you uh, have even more money burning in a hole in your pockets after you have supported the network's Patreon, I have a Patreon under Council of Geeks as well. It is, in fact, what pays my bills. This is my living now. I don't understand it, but here we are. Well, Nathaniel, thanks so much for being here. In all seriousness, it's been an absolute blast catching up with you. It's been far too long, and I enjoy our banter. I enjoy our history, and it's been a true pleasure. It was fun to come back. Let's do it again in three years. Maybe five, something like that. (laughs) 
Now, Matt, thank you so much for appearing on this episode. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can find more of you on the interwebs and in the comic book world? Oh, all right. Well, thank you first and foremost for having me. It was so much fun, and I could just keep talking about this series, so it's good that we're wrapping it up. Um, but if you do want to hear me or read about me, ask me questions about Justice League, I'll gladly just, I'll tweet at you if you want. Um, that's the best place to find me, actually, is Twitter, um, at Matt Begins. That's M-A-T-T-B-E-G-I-N-S. As far as finding any comics, I've got some new projects actually in the works, and you can go to my Twitter account to find out about those and any of my past credits. And yeah, anyone... Feel free to reach out if you want. Talk about comics, especially this era of Justice League. I've got a soft spot for Primal Force, the DC Supernatural uh, (gasps) series uh, post-Zero Hour. So I've been looking for someone to chat Primal Force with sometimes. So, you know, just tweet at me. I absolutely love that series. And we've got a Jack-O-Lantern connection with the JLR. I know. That was one of the things that was reminding me of it. But man, yeah, such an underrated little title. And uh, if I get a tweet that even just says Primal Force, (laughs) you'll make my day. So that's that map begins. Primal Force. Hashtag Primal Force? I don't know. I have found a Primal Force BFF, folks. Finally. <laughs> it took this long in life. <laughs> Even when the series was out, no one was saying that. <laughs> right, exactly. All right, Matt. Well, thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that's going to do it, folks. Now, come back next episode when we cover the 1990 Justice League annuals. That's right. We're going to Antarctica, folks. You have been waiting for it. And we're going to cover Justice League America annual number four. Plus Justice League Europe Annual Number One, and we'll have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people! You know how this works. You're just gonna have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, folks. Until next time, I'm Shag, and I'm Nathaniel, and I'm Matt, and you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? it?